Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Words versus deeds. For now, the fraternity Sigma Alpha Epsilon is perhaps the most famous fraternity in America for all the wrong reasons. It's also been disbanded from the campus of the University of Oklahoma at Norman for all the wrong reasons. Despite what you may believe, it's been disbanded because it got caught on tape and it embarrassed the university, period. Consider this a silly racist chant among teenaged college students. Land several of them with immediate expulsion and the closure of its house. In neighboring Missouri, an entire city targets, oppresses, and exploits millions of dollars from a black community, Ferguson, and lest we forget, kills them on a whim. And who gets fired? No one. Oh, there's some resignations, yes, but not one firing. There's a world of difference between the two. In Oklahoma, the most powerless people on campus are handed the most extreme sanctions expulsions. In Missouri, politicians and police who conspire to loot, exploit, and bleed an entire community for years, and no one gets fired. Wow. What's worse, racist words or racist actions that hurt thousands of people for years? The University of Oklahoma, founded in 1890, could have used this as well a teaching moment about the way racism moves from one generation to the next and how closed systems, in-groups, perpetuate these ideas. The university, while disclaiming these ideas, could have used its history department to teach the roots of those ideas in America and Oklahoman history. If it has an African-American studies program, it could have been a time to shine by providing a study program for SAE members. But first and foremost, it could have defended the First Amendment principle of freedom of speech and used the light of reason to flush out the power of hatred. Instead, a 19-year-old is marked, perhaps for life, with a brand of racism for being drunk and stupid and mean. After the shock wears off, bitterness will fill his soul. College, of all places, can't jump the gun for PR reasons. It must use opportunities to teach, to enlighten, to broaden consciousness for all students, even those, especially those, 
who love to sing about hanging niggers from imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, October 26th, 2015. So I have been told we should be back in about 24 hours. Uh, We should have a white person on the program uh, talking about constitutional rights to bear arms. Uh, A lot of the more popular cases uh, involving gun rights that we've discussed on the program over the past few years will give uh, more details about that. But we should be uh, active moving on into uh, the colder season. Folks are inside, should have an opportunity to listen to the program live. Uh, You can tune back in same time, same station tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, On a quick note, uh, before we get to our guests and our topic for the evening, uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, former Oklahoma City enforcement official, uh, suspected racist and charged rapist. Uh, His trial begins tomorrow, the 27th. Uh, I was thinking, I think when I was talking about this case last week, uh, I thought Monday was the 27th, but it's actually tomorrow. Uh, So folks should be locked in, paying attention, uh, looking for updates. Uh, I did a check before we went on air, and I did not see anything uh, pertaining to Daniel Holtzclaw, his trial. This is uh, a male that has been accused. He's facing over 30 counts of sexual abuse, sexual molestation, sodomy, uh, just a total sexual predator uh, who was exclusively targeting black females in Oklahoma City. Uh, We've talked about this case repeatedly, very important. Uh, It has been woefully underreported and continues to be as there's no buildup, no nothing. What to expect uh, tomorrow, at least thus far when I checked, there was absolutely nothing. Uh, But we definitely will be uh, covering it. And in fact, we should have guests on to talk about that later in the week. More details to come. At any rate, the audio clip that she heard at the beginning of the program, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, huge fan of his work, uh, his writings, and his uh, broadcast efforts, even while he's in greater confinement. Uh, He did that piece earlier this year uh, when everything broke uh, with the Oklahoma University incident. University of Oklahoma incident, excuse me, uh, with SAE, uh, the fraternity where they captured the video of them making the uh, racist chant uh, on the bus talking about uh, lynching niggers and so forth and the the big hoopla uh, around all of that. And he did his commentary. Uh, I started with that because it does address some of the the issues that we're going to talk about this evening in terms of uh, educating and, and how to deal with racism, white supremacy on college campuses. Uh, these younger white people. This is a very common problem. Uh, and I think that was pointed out. I know we pointed that out uh, even at the early part of the year when folks were focused on this, that this was not anything exclusive uh, to the University of Oklahoma, that this sort of thing goes down all the time and has been for years. Uh, even before the program, I was reminded of James Meredith uh, and the terrorism that he endured uh, at Ole Miss. We just uh, recognized the 50-year anniversary of him Uh, being allowed to matriculate uh, at the University of Mississippi. Anywho, uh, the broadcast for today, American University in Washington, D.C., has just been the latest institution uh, that has been spotlighted. And uh, really, as a result of the 
fantastic effort uh, of black scholars on campus who are students uh, at this institution who have refused to be quiet uh, about the racist insults that have been targeting them uh, where they do not feel safe uh, and feel that the institution, the administrators, uh, should be doing as much as possible uh, to eliminate and combat this immediately. And they just started posting screenshots. Uh, a lot of these racist comments, they were on the social app uh, Yik Yak, and there's been a lot of different reporting about that and how uh, it has been used to bully and abuse people, particularly a lot of racist comments uh, over the past year or so. Again, not exclusive to American University. Uh, this first started being reported actually in March with American University. If you uh, look online, there are quite a few different reports uh, where different folks were taking screenshots and noting that this was happening and that, you know, hey, something should be done about this immediately. Uh, the university gave a response and said, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and it has just continued. Uh, we're in October, nearly eight months after the initial reports came out, and it continues. I uh, thought it would be uh, great. Always enjoy hearing from young black people who are serious, determined, and working against racism, white supremacy. Uh, they've been doing a great job uh, themselves using social media to get the word out about this. It's been reported in the Washington Post, uh, NBC, The Root. Uh, lots of different outlets have been talking about this, covering it. Uh, and I think that's one of the best things that we can do is to keep the spotlight that this is happening uh, and to make sure that everybody is informed and aware of it. And then also going on the offensive to see that we can do as much as possible uh, to eliminate and combat this. Uh, the representatives, they formed an organization, The Darkening at American University. Uh, will be great to hear about their experiences, uh, how they got this group together, and what they think should be done uh, to combat white supremacy racism on their campus. Uh, for the folks that dialed in, our guests, if you could uh, help me so I can identify your line, if you could just press star six uh, for our young callers who are, are joining us this evening that way I can identify it's you uh, once you press star six uh, you'll hear an audio prompt to press one uh, and that way I can uh, pick out your line I won't have to go through and dig up beautiful <laughs> we should have uh, our young scholars uh, Tatiana Lang and Imem Obat uh, let's see if uh, they are with us uh, are you with us representatives from the darkening AU Hi, um, this is MM Obot. Um, yes, I am the production of the University. I'm a sophomore, um, and I'm majoring in international studies. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, if there are any other uh, folks that are with the organization, if you're on a separate line, feel free. Just press star six uh, and then one, and I'll be able to inter uh, identify you on the call. Uh, any other folks, uh, are they with you, or is it just you? Uh, I believe Tatiana will be able to call in soon. <laughs> Oh, I think we might have her as well, uh, caller, uh, who also dialed in with a hand up. Are you with us as well? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm Tatiana, yeah. Outstanding. So glad to have both of you with us on the program. Really appreciate you all taking some time out of your schedules uh, to speak with us this evening. Uh, um, no problem. For sure. Uh, guess before we get started, just anything that you think would be helpful for our listeners to know about you all and the work that you've been doing, and then we'll get into specifics. I guess we can start with you, Tatiana. Um, yeah, I'm a senior here, and I'm one of the five um, black women who started the darkening around this time last year after the non-indictment of Darren Wilson. So, you know, the reason the darkening kind of exists is because when we started protesting against what was going on in Ferguson, we met a lot of racism on campus. 
And that was really a wake-up call for us when people would call us the N-word in person to our faces. And on Yik Yak, it got to be extreme. As you know, some of the examples that have been reported, talking about lynching, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of what sparked us to create this organization to hold American University accountable for addressing racism. Um, and since day one, we thought, you know, the best way to address racism is by educating people about the actual history of America and not the kind of, you know, distorted history that most people learn and know by the time they get to college. Outstanding. Outstanding. We'll get more of the details. Uh, Ms. Imem Obat, if you had anything you wanted to add, feel free. Um, yeah, I um, have been talking to the other These amazing black women created this um, group, and it was a huge culture shock for me. I mean, even though I did grow up in a predominantly white um, institution all my life, um, when you show, when you choose a school like American University for its diversity and inclusion, and then you are completely shocked when things like this happen, um, it was something obviously extremely unexpected um, and also very hurtful and it made me want to take more of a stand at least on campus. Um, and it also showed me that obviously being liberal does not, you know, accept, it's not an exception to racism. Mm, right on. Uh, for Miss Obat, Tatiana, I can, uh, I can hear you crystal clear uh, for Imem. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're on speakerphone or what, but it's a little distorted. Um, I don't know if you need to get a little closer to the phone or what have you. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, that is better. Major improvement. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Um, moving forward, uh, before I get into to some of the details to kind of walk through how this all came together and what, particularly what the university's response has been, the administrators, um, number one, the demographics, just so folks are informed. Again, American University, it's in Washington, D.C. I think the student body counting undergrad and grad is approximately 10,000. And unless I've been misinformed, I think the student body has about 6% uh, black students, about 55% white. Is that, is that accurate to you all's knowledge? Yeah. Um, it's around accurate. I think the percentage of African Americans has improved a bit, but it's le- less than ten percent for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Um, before we get to you all specific incidents, since this is in Washington D.C. and there was just pretty major event in your area, your backyard, uh, the Justice or mm-hmm. Else March, which seems at least tangentially related to the issues you all are dealing with on campus. Did any of you all participate? Did you go to the event? Um, I'll let I'll let Emily answer that question. <laughs> Personally, I did not go um, because I feel that the Million Man March is exactly what it says: Million Man. It's not really meant for women or anybody who doesn't fit that gender spectrum, um, and it really only advocates for the uh, issues of black men and completely excludes women and constantly enforces a patriarchal system amongst black women. Hmm. Interesting. So <laughs> to, oh, go off of that, um, to go off of that, yeah, I also didn't attend, but I think um, what MM is getting at is kind of uh, Louis Farrakhan and his personal politics and the things that he has said about black women in particular um, kind of didn't really sit right with me either. Um, I was not in D.C. kind of intentionally that weekend because of a lot of yeah. the conflicts <laughs> around that. 
But that did happen in D.C. Uh, that was pretty big, I guess. But, you know, I think the younger generation of us aren't so big on marching uh, around for no particular reason. Um, and we actually like to get things done, if you ask me. So that's kind of my opinion about that. Yeah. <clears throat> Getting things done. I definitely support that. Okay, <laughs> uh Definitely had to get that in since you all are right right there. Uh, but now back to your right. issue. Uh, one of the first things uh, we try to do with this program is to be clear about terms and definitions and particularly uh, the term racism. Uh, what do you all mean? Mm-hmm. What's your definition? I guess if you all both have a, a separate one, that's fine too. But what is the definition that you use when you use the term racism? Well, um, the darkening, we have a definition that we use. You know, we define structural racism as a combination of personal, cultural, and institutional racism. So it's kind of the way that our society works unintentionally or intentionally um, to exclude, um, oppress, um, and pretty much just like suppress um, black and brown people in this country. So we don't define racism solely as how two people interact with each other, but we define racism, right? Sorry, we define racism as how this country continues to go on and how it has been working since the very beginning. Exactly the same thing. (laughs) I don't think I could have said it any better. But, you know, in terms of American University, in terms of institutions, institutional racism is a big part of structural racism. So at American University, you know, how does this university continue to perpetuate racism in the way that it hires faculty, um, in the way that it treats its workers, in the way that our curriculum looks? Those are all forms of racism because they continue to exclude um, African Americans in, you know, the truth about our history, et cetera. Um, we all of our workers at AU are black and brown people. Um, uh, most of our most all of our tenured faculty are white people. So those are the kinds of ways that racism works outside of just how two people interact with each other. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, if you could explain why your organization is called the Darkening and then just how many people are <laughs> part of this organization. So that's kind of a question that uh, a lot of people have asked us, um, rightfully so. It's a kind of a yeah. ominous name. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of like to leave it up to interpretation, actually. Um, when myself and the five women who created The Darkening, that was initially the name of one demonstration that we got over 200, almost 300 people to come together on campus to protest what was happening in Ferguson, but also to stand up and say that we don't, um, we don't condone the racism that was happening on campus and that event was what we call the darkening but we decided to continue organizing and that name just kind of stuck because people knew who we were because we got so many people together so you know we kind of tell people you know take what you want from the name um, as long as you're getting something uh, along the lines of what we're doing from it sure but obviously it has to do with um, being addressing um, the experience of students of color here at AU and kind of really not being afraid to focus on um, black students in particular and using the word racism, which our university tends not to do. We like to use the words like diversity and inclusion and talk about the campus climate, but our university does not like to use the words racism and black, and we're just kind of more direct and to the point. Amen. Dig it. Uh, Emem, did you have anything you wanted to add? 
Um, not really. I mean, you know, like Tatiana says, we're directed to the point. I think if you ever met me and Tatiana in person, we'd be the <laughs> people who will always be to the void. And I think um, Tatiana and the other four amazing black women, again, were able to incorporate that attitude and that mindset into an amazing organization that can do so much on campus. Hmm. And you all said that it was five black females who started this organization, but that was, I mean, mm-hmm. that was over a year ago. So how, how many approximately people are involved with you all right now? So, I mean, there's a lot of ways we can measure that. Um, we're an open organization. We invite anyone on campus, students, faculty, staff to take, uh, join us. Um, all that is required of you is that you go through a structural racism workshop in order to then sign up to organize with us. But um, officially, I would say we have around like 50 committed members, but we have like a general listserv and group of people who stay involved with what we do and what we say and like when we have demonstrations and actions um, we definitely like welcome hundreds of people to partake in whatever we're doing so there's a lot of ways to see how many people we have but probably around 50 people who are you know committed to doing this kind of thing every single day organizing um, behind the scenes but well our Facebook like page has over 800 likes right now so that's another measurement I guess but we're very open and fluid, and we're less concerned about who's who and more about what are we doing. So, yeah. And then I don't know if you have anything to add about that. I really want to emphasize the part of, like, the not really being concerned about who's who, especially at American University. A lot of people get caught up in names and who's doing what and, you know, um, who's driving what and not really the actual cause that's being um, <clears throat> enforced or trying to be, you know, pushed out. Um, so, again, the Darkening is one of those amazing organizations that really is able to eliminate that concept and truly just focus on the message rather than the individuals or whoever that work. Right. So we don't consider ourselves leaders or anyone leaders in the movement. We have a committee structure and we tackle tasks and we have goals that we want to meet and whoever is there to make it happen is who takes the lead on whatever thing that we're doing. So a lot less focus on who's there um, and how many people are there and, like, you know, who's going to have their name on what we did and more about were we able to accomplish the goal that we set out. Mm-hmm. What uh, can you kind of tell us uh, some of what, the structural racism course that you said people, they have to participate in this before they can be active in your group. Like, what does that course consist Mm of? So this was a course um, that I uh, had the ability to work with uh, someone else in the D.C. area to create um, for another program, but I kind of tweaked it for um, our purposes, and it includes our definition of racism, structural racism, um, and kind of breaks down what is personal racism, what is cultural, what is institutional, and we it's a workshop, so it's very interactive, and it allows people to apply the definitions while learning it, because mm-hmm. I feel like it's hard to explain what institutional racism is, so what we do is we give a definition, but then we say, okay, everyone in the room, pick uh, an institution, and now you explain to me through the definition that we give you how racism works in this institution. And by going through these workshops um, that are very interactive and allow people to, at whatever point in knowledge they are around racism, participate and hopefully 
learn something more um, and make a common vocabulary, then we get people to be able to talk about this on their own without um, being coached. It's not so much of a history class, um, that I would say, but it's more about what are we talking about, what are, how are we going to define racism, and how does that inform what we as an organization are trying to do with this institution of American University. So it's really important because we're focusing on an institution for people to understand what institutional racism is and how it doesn't really matter if individuals want to be racist towards each other. Um, the outcome is racism unless people step in and change the way that things work. And I think our workshop does a very good job of, like, um, really emphasizing how to critically think about race. Uh, being People say a lot, um, critically think about mm -hmm. race, critically think about your surroundings, but many people don't really know how to do that or what that really looks like. And this workshop really gives people the tools to do that, take a definition like structural racism, which is a very complex thing to understand, honestly. Um, you're destroying realities when you give someone that type of definition. And then also... Mm -hmm giving them this definition to apply it to institutions um, throughout our society or AU and to really deconstruct everything that makes mm -hmm. this institution how it oppresses, um, excludes, and exploits black and brown people. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very intensive, honestly, especially the thought process. I did it myself, and I... I think I, I would say that I've had at least a lot of, like, experience deconstructing it, but even then, it, I was still open up to a lot of amazing things. So um, it is, you can't go through that workshop saying you didn't learn about racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of our, like, main goals, um, you know, kind of fighting ignorance and allow not letting people get by by saying, oh, I didn't know that, or I didn't know that right. expensive, or I didn't know X. Um, we're at a university. We're at a college. I mean, what better place to have people actually learn something rather than just argue? Like, we do a lot of talking about the effects of racism and microaggressions, but we don't really talk about why we are not understanding each other. And most of it is just because we don't have a common vocabulary to talk about race. So when I say that was racist, somebody might take it very personally when it shouldn't be because I'm talking about institutional or structural racism. So it really just helps level the playing field. Like anyone at AU or anyone anywhere can come into this workshop and leave knowing how to talk to each other about what's going on around us. Hmm. And is this like you said, uh, you got to pick institutions so that people can explain. Uh, so if we picked a bank, uh, or mm -hmm. a church, whatever, your school, even American University, mm -hmm. let's pick an institution right. and then describe how institutional racism works. How is it manifest in different exactly. aspects yeah. of, of this group and having people walk through that? Like, is there literature that people get and how long is this, this course? So it depends on the group and how the discussion goes because it usually leads to some really great discussion, but uh, it takes at minimum around an hour and a half um, to get through at minimum, and that's by, you know, kind of limiting the conversation. Mm -hmm. But we don't hand out, like, reading per se. Um, the workshop was created as a, um, from social justice literature um, that myself and uh, the other woman, her name is Bianca Vasquez, um, had access to, and it was our job at that point to come up with this training. But we don't hand it out. We make it very accessible. So whether you want to read a 500-word document or not, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Whether you, whether you know anything or not before you come, doesn't matter. 
uh, we just want to reach people where they are. Um, and we do provide other resources, like once you've gone through it, like here we give out articles if people want to read more, et cetera. Because we stay on a very, like, theoretical level for the most part, um, except for the activity where we take an institution and we talk very specifically about how it exploits, excludes, underserves, and oppresses uh, people of color. Mm. Wow. Wow. Did uh, did you all know either? I'm just, I guess, talking about the original core of five of you. Did you all know each other before all this started? Like, were you friends or did you all kind of meet in the process of doing this? So myself and the other five women who uh, kind of started the darkening, we knew each other. Uh, we were friends. Um, we knew each other from other you know, being black students at a predominantly white university, um, you kind of get to know <laughs> most everybody. Uh, but it was mostly um, other students who were in my school of public affairs. And, you know, either we had class together or we had known each other from just being in similar circles. Um, but we didn't really, I would say, you know, the other forum and they all graduated. Um, and I'm a senior now, so I'm about to graduate. But we all really got to know each other well and got to know each other better in the process of planning that initial demonstration, which, you know, we had to stay up all night to plan and put together, um, and then continuing to organize together. So when I would really got to know um, these women. So, kind of, yeah, I knew them. I knew of them. Um, we were Some of us were acquaintances. Um, I was really good friends with one, but I really got to be close to them in the process. Mm, wow. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go with the mem on this and then Tatiana, you can add to it. Um, we've had a lot of mm -hmm. students from across the country uh, on University of Michigan, University of Cincinnati, uh, San Jose State University, yeah. uh, where they've had similar types of incidents uh, of just tacky trifling racism and i've asked a lot of them like what's been the response from your parents like you know if they said man we worked so hard to get you guys in school and not for you to be running around and protesting everything and, and putting things in jeopardy <laughs> like how uh, how have your parents and and family responded to uh, y'all's activism <laughs> this question's really funny to me because um it's really my life. I think when I first got to AU, my mother was just like, why are you doing this? Like, she really didn't understand. I don't think she really understood how deep racism truly affected us. And I think this is one thing that we really focus on in the workshop, too, how we always focus on personal racism and completely, we end up ignoring and turning a blind eye to the institutional structural racism at hand. So, um, you know, <laughs> so... <clears throat> When my mom saw me doing all this activist work, she, again, you were right. She's just like, why are you doing this? Like, I could take you out of school. You could make a blog. Like, you don't have to waste my money to do this. And <laughs> it wasn't until, like, August when she finally came to AU, and I think she saw it firsthand, because we did have another incident earlier this year where we had um, a group of white women or who decided to post a picture, uh, and the caption was really hypersexualization of black men. And, um... When that happened, and my mom was here firsthand, I think she really truly realized like how deep of, how deep this issue is and how um, institutional this issue really is. And it's not just like one case; it the case, but it leads to other things, and it constantly perpetuates and um, oppresses all the time. Um, so after that, I, she got, I got a lot more support from my mom now, my family, and I'm not like the crazy activist kid in the family. Like, I'm actually doing something like useful. <laughs> yeah, my my parents um, are. I would say they're pretty worried about me uh, a lot of the time. They 
they understand and for the most part agree with the things that I'm saying and doing, but especially, you know, the social media nature of activism these days. My parents are worried that um, people are going to see what I'm saying and not agree with it and retaliate. Um, and I think they're, they're more, I think they're more worried um, than, like, they don't actually disagree, but they're kind of just worried about me and worried about what could happen. I mean, it's not, the odds aren't in my favor as a black individual in a city, um, especially in Northwest D.C. where we are. There's where the percentages of black people are much lower. So they they worry, um, they worry about how uh, my professors and potential employers, et cetera, will feel about the kind of things that I say online. And that's pretty much the angle that they have said to me. They have never told me to stop um, at all. But they have just said, you know, are you thinking about how other people might take what you're saying? Um, and I think that's the way that they approach it. But at, to this point, they haven't, like, you know, told me, like, you know, stop <laughs> what you're doing. Yeah, um, they just express, yeah, they just kind of express, you know, a little trepidation about the kinds of things that I'm involved in, yeah. The job thing, especially my mom was always like, you're never going to get a job if you keep posting patriarchal posts. But I did <laughs> her, like, Honestly, at that point, then I don't want to work for you. If you disagree right. with anything that I'm saying, then I right. don't hire me. I don't want to work in an environment like that. Because your right. chances are you're probably just going to, you know, uphold these oppressive norms in your environment if you really find anything wrong with this. Right. Precisely. Mm. Context of white supremacy. Inspiring hearing mm-hmm. from two courageous black females. I was just saying the name of the program, but it would be appropriate for your experience, too. Uh, <laughs> Tatiana Lang, Imem Obat, mm-hmm. outstanding hearing from them. Um, what uh, I, I heard from both of you, and I hear this from a lot of our guests, and it's age doesn't even really matter, um, where something racist happened and maybe it was kind of their first experience or they had had heard very limited personal experience with racism, like they knew it existed and that sort of thing, but just they mm-hmm. hadn't had to deal with it in their personal lives very much. And then it happened and they said that they were shocked. And it seems like you all have had a, a litany of incidents over the last 14 months on a personal level at, at your campus. Um, how has this changed your understanding of what it means to be white and specifically young white people, like the white people that are under 25 that we hear so much about mm-hmm. that? They're not racist. This is a new generation. This is, you know, all good. They voted for <laughs> President Obama. They listen to Jay-Z. They love Beyonce. Not racist young white people. How has it changed your view? <clears throat> I don't know, MM, do you want to go first? <laughs> My view of what it means to be white and young white people. Um, American University has really taught me that um, <clears throat> how dangerous truly that structural racism is, how subconscious it is, um, how segregated our society is. Um, I think one of the biggest issues here at AU that, like, it all leads up to this stuff, but, I mean, you have majority of these kids do come from upper class, you know, wealthy families, and they live in areas as such, and many of those areas do not include black or brown bodies. <clears throat> so their only, like, true, um, you know, interaction with a black or brown person is really media. And then they bring those false stereotypes and ideas into a real-life situation where they meet a person like me, Tatiana, on the street, and then, you know, they start trying to talk and, like, um, Ebonics or something to me or touching my hair, you know, just the mm-hmm. little small things. But in 
And, you know, you have the bigger things where, like, they're just overtly racist. But, honestly, a lot of these kids do not understand um, race because they've really never had the chance to really think about it. Everyone in their life, it's just been a homogeneous life to them. Everyone looks the same. You finally see one person that doesn't, but you're not thinking about race, so it doesn't mean anything to you. However, I have to think about it every day when I walk down the street, when I raise my hand in class, when I even approach you, like, it's something, mm-hmm. and I think that some kids are maybe starting to realize that, but most white kids don't. They never really understand their privilege when you finally, when they finally realize that the privilege that they have to not think about their race every single day and waking moment of their life. Um, and I think, yeah, going off of that, I think it's, you know, the myth that like, oh, young white people aren't racist now is coming yeah. from that misunderstanding of what racism is and that, you know, yeah. racism can only be two people disagreeing with each other or being mean to each other. Um, you can see racism in our generation every single day um, at a predominantly white university, especially. And if you know what racism is, at least in the way that we define it structurally, institutionally, you can see that, you know, being just acquiescing and just letting life continue to oppress certain people and ignoring that, being able to ignore that, like MM said, and like having absolutely no understanding of the history of this country whatsoever, um, you know, calling slaves workers instead of slaves, things like that, um, you know, and then when you come to like racism that happens and we witness it, like something happens on Yik Yak, then you have the white students who come and say, well, that that's like obviously somebody trolling, but you know, mm-hmm. as black students, we've, we've we've experienced racism on Yik Yak, but that's not the point. We experienced racism in class. We experienced microaggressions in residence halls. We experienced racism all over. So the myth that racism doesn't exist anymore is more harmful than good because it's harder to have the conversation. People don't want to talk about race because they believe that it's it's not something that negatively affects anyone anymore. So uh, it's, whenever I hear people say, you know, oh, young people, young white people, like, you know, they love Beyonce, they love Jay-Z, so they're not racist. Like, they they are just more oblivious to race, and it's harder to get to them. It's harder to talk to them, um, especially at a liberal university like AU. Like, it's harder, to, it's harder to get, yeah, it's harder to get people to the table. It's harder to get people to think that they could possibly um, be guilty of racism. So it makes our lives as black students at a predominantly white university extremely difficult when it's left up to us to try and reach other students rather than the university using the curriculum to teach people about the history because people don't know what happened. And then if you don't know what happened in this country, there's no way you're going to believe that racism is happening now. There's like absolutely no way. Um, and even if you do believe that, you're not going to believe it. Um, <laughs> you're not going to believe it in the right way. You're just going to think it has to do with you personally. You're not going to be racist to anyone. Um, and we've heard some ridiculous things said in, in I guess, response to us calling out racism here at AU. And it's just yeah. a result of this feeling that racism isn't an issue anymore. Oh. And Atiana really brought up an amazing point to me one day. Um, and, you know, and she had mentioned that racism, when talking about this, you really need to take the feelings aside and teach yourself about the situation because racism is something that's bigger than both of us. When having mm-hmm. a conversation, it's not about me and you. It's really about an entire structure against us, a whole system against us, and that's something that to really keep in mind. And 
something that is very hard to remind, I think, white people in general, especially white youth, it's this white fragility thing where you start talking mm-hmm. about race and their guilt automatically just, like, kicks in and they just get really defensive because they automatically think that you're attacking them. And, you know, when you're, I, like I said, you're really destroying someone's reality. Um, mm-hmm. You're destroying everything they you know. You're destroying everything that they have come to learn about. So when doing that, it is a very hard process. And I think um, I've grown some type of, some emphasis on some patience and empathy <laughs> um, for white students on our campus. Um, because, again, I have been able to live with this all my life. So obviously I know it's easier for me to, um, you know, embrace Understand. and absorb, right? However, for a white student, this is a completely new concept. It's literally like going into an entirely new world, and sometimes ignorance is bliss for some people. So really mm-hmm. realizing that the world that you know it is not exactly what you know, you know, you're going to have to push back. Hmm. You got to give us uh, one example. You said that the the quote unquote ridiculous responses that you've gotten when you all started calling <laughs> out things, these things that were posted on Yik Yak and either white people in person yelling things when you all were out doing your protests and what have you. Like, give us one of the, the best examples of these quote unquote ridiculous responses. Um, <laughs> uh, today, we'll go, we'll go with an example that's happening today right now if you go to to american university's facebook page right now you can see the response that uh, our university has to everything that's going on but if you scroll down in those comments you'll see (laughs) you'll see an individual um i don't remember his name maybe i'm I'm, whatever why do i know (laughs) an individual an alumni from american university uh his response to all of this is that Black uh, and Latino people are genetically inferior to white people, uh, biologically. I think I think that's the word he used, biologically. And um, this comment was made earlier this morning, and this individual has been um, arguing with people on this thread ever since, and this is still happening now. This is someone who had the opportunity to be educated at American University um, and is working for the government now. Um, and it brags about being a donor to American University, and he believes wholeheartedly, unfortunately, that uh, black and brown people are biologically inferior to white people, and that's where our problems come from, and that we shouldn't waste our time calling out the university when really we're just, you know, inferior beings, and science has proven that. So uh, that's probably that's the most really ridiculous of the responses. But this is of today going on right now. Anyone who's listening can go and see this thread. Yeah, it's probably one of the scariest things. And, like, one of the things that we're always emphasizing when we talk about, like, mandatory education at AU because you have alumni that come out from AU and they just end up, you know, upholding oppressive norms um, like our mm-hmm. mayor of D.C., who is, you know, enforcing this crime bill, who is an alum of AU. You have Juliana Ranzik, who can go on national TV and talk about Zendaya's lock. And then you have this guy right here who works for U.S. Um, aid. And, I mean, we already have, there's over-racism in, mm-hmm. you know, the business, sec- uh, business sector and development, you know, especially mm-hmm. towards, you know, um, 
regions and countries in Africa or Latin America. So are you really, then you, you kind of see like how this stuff is constantly perpetuated. Um, and it's extremely scary and, um, really alarming, but again, not surprising. And it's like, Hey, you do you really want to be known as the institution that just shoves out, you know, people who are excelling in their fields, but still constantly, you know, upholding oppressive norms, or do you want to be the institution that constantly is throwing out amazing individuals who are revolutionizing our world and actually, or even, I mean, even if, even if you don't expect everyone who graduates AU to be revolutionary, like at the bare minimum, you want them to not be horribly racist individuals. Um, And that's something, that's something like you can't have your alumni asserting that black and brown people are biologically inferior. That is the best example of what a lack of education will do to you. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Did, uh, did you all have like before I'm, I'm going back all the way to last summer with the Michael Brown, when y'all started mm-hmm. your protest and everything before then or since did y'all have like white friends or white allies who said, you know, Hey, I hear you all talking about this. This is a problem. Tell me what we can do to help. Mm-hmm. I want to be there protest anything we can do to help. Let us know. We have the most amazing white allies. Um, and I will continue to praise them. Um, we, in our organization, we're not a solely black organization. Anyone at AU can get involved. And some of our, like, you know, leadership, even though we don't consider ourselves leaders, uh, are white allies. And they have been right there with us along the way. Um, they are, you know, have taken it upon themselves to educate themselves. And they have just been there. I mean, they work equally as hard as us. Um, and I think, you know, an ally is someone who does that. Like they have educated themselves and continue to educate themselves. But most importantly, they are active and they're working just as hard as or harder as harder than we are to reach the goals of of like black liberation and ending white supremacy. Um, and I wholeheartedly believe that if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't like have other white friends <laughs> because they're the ones who you know show me that it's possible to like kind of overcome all of this privilege that you have and put that aside and really fight to end the systems that give you those privileges. It's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, a catch 22, like you have to give something up. So they're the ones who show me that it's possible for white people to kind of address that and move on and really be active in this movement. Hmm. Imem, did you have anything you want to add? Um, no, I mean, like, I think that was really spot on. Um, again, we do have just amazing allies who are just there to constantly support us throughout the, throughout the way, who always know their their place um, mm-hmm. and are always mindful of that constantly, and it's just reassuring and really just a beautiful thing to see. Um, and I've learned a lot from them, too, and just as mm-hmm. I think they've learned from us, and it's really an amazing experience and it shows what type of friend, how friendships especially you know across races should look like um, mm-hmm. and should be especially in an, a movement like this hmm. right at a predominantly white university amen <laughs> fascinating fascinating has at any point over the last 14 months or even before that have you actually uh felt unsafe i know tatiana you said your parents had some, yeah. some concerns for your well-being have you all felt unsafe at any mm-hmm. point God, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, 
it's gotten to a point where with all the organizing that we do, because um, I do do things off campus also, but I've just gotten to a point where it's like, I'm kind of, I'm ready for anything. Like, throw it at me. I'm kind of done. <laughs> I don't like to live in fear, you know, of just what could come. I mean, I know I've had death threats sent my way um, for speaking about speaking out about certain things. And um, I take them seriously, but not really, because in all honesty, these AU kids really aren't about that life. <laughs> I know they're not going to do anything. Right. Um, but, I mean, it still is kind of scary because, that somebody would have the audacity to say something like, as you're giving like a speech in MDC, like someone would have the audacity to say, like, hang these niggers, um, mm-hmm. talking in MDC, like someone couldn't get the rope, and you know, you show that to administration right then and there, and you try and follow up in nothing, you know? Right. Um, and it gets a bit irritating, like, people will make fake accounts sometimes and troll you, sending you death threats. I think the one that I got the most, which I laughed at, but I did take to some, it was kind of serious to me. However, I never reported it because they didn't do anything. Um, it was concerning, again, those white girls who had posted uh, the caption of hypersexualizing black men, and mm-hmm. a, some troll account had posted that, uh, you're just a bitter black woman, let me hang you from a tree, and hang you from your misery. Um, and I didn't take it seriously because, you know, I just, I it's the internet, it's Twitter, especially such a huge, like, you get that all the time. However, I do know that it was an AU student. I don't know who, but I do know that it was. And um, things like that are constantly, like, they do put me on edge, especially walking around in this neighborhood where it is majority white. Um, and you see things that happen, like, you know, what happened to Jason um, in Southeast D.C. when he's just going to mm-hmm. get money from an ATM. Like, those type of things will constantly reinforce that I'm always a right. threat to all of these white people, no matter what I do, even walking down the street. Yeah, I mean, going off of that, I personally uh, don't consider myself afraid of anyone here at AU. Um, Here at AU, as MM said, people are pretty much all talk, so I'm not afraid of um, anyone here at AU. I think the overarching issues that arise from structural racism, like police brutality um, in D.C. and the overall D.C. issues with racism, I think, are what would, you know, actually frighten me. Um, I I, I don't think it's productive for me to be afraid of anyone who trolls on social media because most of them don't even put their name on it. So they're obviously not um, confident enough to follow through. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, uh, just for, uh, for both of you, but especially at what, uh, Imem, what she shared about this, this comment that you're just a bitter, uh, black woman and we should hang you from a tree and, and put you out of your misery. I, uh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And I, I will ask, I use the term terrorism. Uh, I have, emphasize consistently on this program that racism, white supremacy is terrorism. That, in fact, in my view, is the major form of terrorism on this planet, uh, targeting Mm non-white people and particularly black people. Uh, Do you think that that's an act of terrorism, her, even though it's on social media saying that, you know, we should we should just lynch you? 
definitely. I definitely, I definitely yeah. think so. I mean, I think that our <clears throat> country has agreed that terrorism is only like, you know, jihad and comes from people in the Middle East or people of Middle Eastern descent. But, you know, in the history of this world, and like, this is why I really want history to be taught right. In the world, in the United States, um, the perpetuators of the most terrorism, the most constant um, and persistent terrorism, have always been um, white supremacists um, right. from the very beginning. And I don't think that has changed till today. I mean, the only reason, not the only reason, but, you know, everything that's going on in Yik Yak is, you know, anonymous white people who go around right. trying to scare people. And that's like the history of this country. Anonymous white people, whether it's the KKK or people on Yik Yak, you know, they cover their faces and they go out at night and they try to scare you um, because they're insecure in the power that they have because they don't really have any. They constructed it themselves um, out of nothing. So, you know, they're not biologically superior as um, our resident troll would like us to believe. So, you know, that is a, it's a symptom of their fear of losing power. Um, that they really don't actually have. So they have been the most consistent and persistent uh, terrorists um, in the world, not only just the United States. And it constantly just, like, emphasizes how we, um, you know, how we shape our reality. Um, You know, like, we always are constantly sensationalizing and emphasizing, like, uh, brown terrorists, brown and black terrorists, but we never really talk about the white terrorists that we have when studies have shown, obviously, that white supremacy and old white men are actually mostly most dangerous people to America mm-hmm. right now. So, um, you know, it's constantly, like, we we always emphasize the small things when it comes to negatives, and then we'll completely overlook, like, these huge overarching, like, questions and um, narratives that we have. Um, and, like Tatiana was saying, you know, it just it just proves that you know, they're always trying to constantly, um, you know, make sure that their power is still there and constantly mm-hmm. control their power. And um, I definitely would say, like, that comment is just another form of racism. If it were flipped out with a brown person saying that, um, in any type of other context, that kid would be suspended. Like, AU would be so quick to work on that. Um, right, but we all know there was a white kid behind the, you know, behind that screen. So, you know, he's not going to do as much. Wow, I want to specifically get your thoughts on how the, I suspect, white university officials have responded to all this over about the past <laughs> uh, eight months. Uh, to kind of go back to March before we got some of the more recent stuff. As I said, this this had come out months ago that this was happening and mm-hmm. students thought it was a concern. They didn't feel safe and they requested that uh, administration do something about this immediately. At the time, again, this is March, they said uh, university announced a forum would take place Thursday night to advance AU toward its ideal as an inclusive, there was one of the buzzwords, community. Uh, and they said they were going to do this, and this would be one of their first steps. Uh, do you remember this forum? Did you attend? Did it have any yeah. impact? Uh, no, it didn't. It was actually trash. Um, to be <laughs> short and honest, um, it was just one of those things where, like, you're really preaching to the choir, and it was just the same, you know, it's the same kids, and, of course, it was, like, the same people, um, black and brown students who are out there, like, just trying to get their experiences validated by administration, um, and, of course, they invalidated it by saying, well, we teach our 
faculty, you know, we have workshops and stuff, and, like, this forum is going to help. And it's like, no, it's not. Like, we are, all the people who are here have already experienced this. We mm-hmm. know what this racism is. We're not the ones perpetuating this. They mm-hmm. are, you know? I think so, that's the, been the most frustrating thing about the university's response is that it's pretty much, you know, giving voluntary opportunities for people to talk about their experiences and talk about um, the current, like, you know, things that are going on at campus rather than what we want, what we have asked for from the very beginning, which is mandatory education about, like, the roots and realities of racism. So not only what's going on now, what are microaggressions, um, what is the context of happening in Ferguson, but what is the history of the United States with black people? Like, how was this how was this entire country built on white supremacy? Like how? Because that is a conversation that is impossible to have, as we said earlier, with young white people who believe that racism um isn't really a thing anymore because obviously racism is only like me not liking you because of the color of your skin. So right. we don't think that voluntary forums are the right thing to do. I mean, we go to these forums and we have good conversations at these forums, but we are, aren't the people who need to go to these forums. Um, And the only way to, the only way to reach those individuals is by uh, making it compulsory. Like that's, that's what we've been asking for, for over a year now. Um, The university has come out recently saying that they don't think that mandatory education would do anything to help the situation, which is kind of frustrating. Um, when studies have shown that it will. What'd you say? When studies have showed that it will, like yeah. mandatory education is probably one of the best, um, one of the best options and one of the best routes when it comes to a predominantly white institution um, mm-hmm. in trying to uh, create a real inclusive environment. Because. Like I and I, like I had mentioned earlier, like a lot of these kids, it's unconscious. They don't mean to, um, mm-hmm. and they've never had any interactions with black people. Conversations need to be had. They need to actually learn how to be around black people. Like you mm-hmm. don't learn that through media experiences or social media. Like you actually have to actually be around black and brown people to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And IU really doesn't grasp that concept. And it's also gotten to this point where like they just run around and shove what they have done in our faces as if mm-hmm. so there's no way we could be racist institution when A, obviously if you've been doing all this stuff and it's not working, then you haven't been doing enough. And B, just because you accepted twenty three percent um, you know, your your class, your incoming uh freshman class was twenty three percent people of color does not mean that racism doesn't exist on this campus. Like right. um bringing more black and brown bodies on a campus actually to me enforces the notion that black and brown people are only commodities and products and they will only be seen and treated as such in mm-hmm. a leverage for your um, utopian idea of an institution, which is inclusive and diverse, not actually, like, really caring about the humanity behind the people that you accept. And I think think one thing about American University is just the way that it markets itself um, and the reality of being here. Um, As a senior, having been here for four years, the situation has gotten worse with, with the more influx of black um, students and Latino students and other students of color. Yeah. Um, because there are more interactions and there's more um, 
like overt racism and there's more microaggressions. It's been building and building. Um, and the response has always been like these voluntary forums um, every single time. Um, and you know, it's just not working. I don't know what other way to say it when we, we had all of this activism and all of these, um, responses from the university last year, but the incoming class um, is having the biggest um, racial struggle right now because of how diverse it is. The incoming class, yeah, it has 23% of students of color, but they're the ones who had like the N word written on their doors in their residence hall, and that never happened. That never happened to me when I was a freshman here, um, and there was a smaller percentage of uh, black students. So it's not just simply, as MM said, having more black students it's like what are we doing to teach our students what racism is and where it came from and where where it comes from today and why it's still going on whether we like it or not i mean like i mean i'll point out that like you know it's microaggressions and um, macroaggressions as i call them so it's things like writing the n-word on people's doors and it's also things that are more subtle like you know talking about affirmative action in class and having your professor point at you and ask you to explain why affirmative action is important to you, um, which happened to me. So, you know, there's different ways that racism occurs, and I think that there's just, there isn't a common understanding about what it is. So when we as students have to face these instances of microaggressions especially, and we say, this is uncomfortable, this is racism, we automatically have people disagree and saying, well, that's not racist, I didn't mean it. Um, and we are at a disadvantage because the other people in the conversation have no idea what racism is other than when they intentionally need to be um, offensive to you. So it's just really a bad position to put students of color in. Um, even the 23% of students of color, like they're just going to have to face it more often. Um, so, you know, diversity isn't an end. Um, it's not a solution to the problem. Um, diversity is for white people. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I want to uh, pick apart the Washington Post. Uh, they published the response from Assistant Vice President of Campus Life, Fanta Awe, at American University. They mm -hmm. published her response uh, this past week in the Washington Post, and she kind of walked down. Uh, this is what official steps the university is taking to deal with this problem and just kind of go point by point some of the things that she's saying. So she says, first and most importantly, we encourage dialogue. We want all students to work with us and with one another to affect the climate on campus. Orientation for all incoming first-year students includes diversity and microaggression discussions to set the tone for interactions as students proceed through their years at AU. So I'll stop right there. So did you all go through this initiation? No. You, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, not well, this the things that they're talking about um, started with this incoming class, and MM is a sophomore and I'm a senior, so yeah. neither of us had um, had the opportunity to go through it. Um, but, you know, as you read that, I kind of, you know, say to myself, yeah, I mean, you're not, what you're saying is true, but it's exactly what we said before. You do promote dialogue, but that's it. Like, you do say, you know, we should really talk about race, um, but talking about it without having a common history and knowledge isn't really helping anyway. It's frustrating black students. It's frustrating students of color because, you know, we're coming together to talk about these things and expecting students to, like, educate each other, which is not the point of being at college. I mean, mm -hmm. we have all of these faculty um, 
who are experts in their field and have very few um, experts in African-American studies here at American University. The ones that we have are amazing, but they're very few and far between. So, you know, it's not untrue that they promote dialogue. Um, that is not an untrue statement. It's just that's, that's, that's what they do, <laughs> and that's it. And it puts a burden on students to, you know, explain explain ourselves explain our identity as black students explain what racism is explain how it affects us um and you know we do it because we want people to learn but they're voluntary so we're preaching to the choir like 99 percent of the time yeah and also with those um trainings that they call or the dialogues that they try to start a lot of them are just being powerpoints um, and mm-hmm. they throw a bunch of definitions at you. And again, like um, what Tatiana had mentioned with a workshop, like this is a this is a very complex definition, and mm-hmm. just to throw it at you, it, you're not going to be able to absorb it. You need to be like, and they don't, it's not like a really like interactive workshop. They just throw these definitions at you, um, and then you're supposed to know them so they can say that they did it, and then maybe your um, OL, which is your orientation leader because you're set up, you split up in groups, might talk about it, but they're not saying mm-hmm. you can have this conversation. And right. that's if they want to follow up on it. So, you know, it, again, it's not, man, it's really not like any, it doesn't really add anything to the conversation. I wouldn't even say it's like a dialogue. It's just yeah. there because they said it and to say that they did it, you know, not to actually I, make any impactful change of the sentiment on campus. And I assume you're going to read more, so I'll let you before I get yeah. on the mandatory education part. <laughs> I will continue reading. Uh, so picking up, it says, uh, residence hall assistants are provided training and encouraged to create inclusive communities. There's that word again. This semester, we step up our work with the faculty to develop their ability to discuss issues in the classroom in an inclusive, wow, we, and respectful way. <laughs> Our goal is to further enhance these curricular efforts over the next few semesters. And I will stop there. I would just like to add that if any institution has to add that many buzzwords, chances are <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> like, so we have two people on our committee who actually are with um, the resident direct like the resident assistant housing and dining that program housing and dining and they never got any about training whatsoever um and like i said if they did it was very bare minimum and it wasn't interactive and it really didn't give them much of a grasp or even authority to really have a have a dialogue like if you know like the situation we had earlier this year when someone writes nigger on the dry erase boards of students living there well not many of those RAs really even have that, you know, that say or are able to do that, facilitate a conversation mm-hmm. like that on the floor. So, like, how do you even expect that to happen? And yeah. in faculty, like, I, some faculty that I've spoken to, I haven't heard anything like that. Um, and if they have, again, it's the same thing. It's not really doing anything. It's just there, so they said they did it. And probably, and, like, a really small, discreet board. Yeah, I know for the residence hall issue, a lot of the issues this year have happened in the residence hall, as MM um, noted. And the RAs have come to us um, kind of <laughs> exasperated um, and kind of kind of distraught because 
they don't know what to do about it. Um, they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to talk about it. Um, and the, the response from the university to have, um, the train, they had a training last week in the week uh, or the week before, I don't remember, um, in the residence hall where this is an issue. And we, we were told that it wasn't a very effective workshop. You know, you can't do these workshops with hundreds of students. You just can't. Um, that's, that's another that's another reason that I know we haven't gotten to the mandatory education part, but that's another reason why it has to be linked to like your grade for you to really take it seriously. Right. Um, and most of the students who were going through this training um, or workshop or whatever we're calling it um, did not take it seriously. We're laughing, we're creating excuses from themselves throughout the entire time. So, you know, when you read the statement from the university, they are absolutely telling the truth that they have. X, Y, and Z. It's just not the whole entire story. Um, right. And the faculty piece is also true. I know that they're working with faculty. I know that because I've had the opportunity to come to some of those discussions and forums. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same kind of issue. Um, it's not all the faculty um, who are going through these um, trainings. And I continue to have um, issues with faculty in the classroom. So that's my you know, measure of whether it's working or not. Oh, wow. Give us one issue that you've had with a, a white faculty member. Um, the example I always give um, and that I you know, alluded to earlier with my constitutional law class, I had and our, we had gone through the discussion, we spent the whole entire class period talking about affirmative action um, and, you know, how the courts said that affirmative action should be upheld because it, you know, adds diversity to the conversation. So then at the end of the conversation, our professor turns to me and the other two black students in the classroom directly to us and, ask, and asks us, you know, since this is the purpose of affirmative action, what kind of uh, opinions or diversity do you want to add to this particular conversation? Um, and he looks at us, um, and we look at each other because we're like, okay, he's asking this generally, but he was very clearly asking the three of us, um, and we were really taken aback by the fact that, you know, all of those assumptions, that that statement withheld, uh, I mean, may, and contained a lot of assumptions that we were all there because of affirmative action and that it was our responsibility to um, educate the people around us um, about our experiences as students of color. Um, and that's, that's an example of a microaggression that um, isn't overt. And I don't think our professor, you know, woke up that morning saying, like, hmm, how am I going to be racist towards these three students in my class tonight? Um, but it was. It was racist. And that's the clearest example of a microaggression that I could ever give because he was thinking one thing, like, this is the perfect way to explain why we have affirmative action. That's what he was thinking. Um, but all the students in the class, black and white, every single one of us, and maybe for, with the exception of a few, knew that it was wrong for him to say what he said um, and direct it to us. Um, and that's one encounter with a professor that I've had at American University. Wow. Wow. I, I definitely want to get to uh, the mandatory education component that you all think would be effective mm -hmm. in, in resolving some of these issues. But just before I, I get to that, I am obligated anytime affirmative action comes up. Uh, I have taken mm -hmm. the position anytime. I wouldn't care who the white person is. Uh, any white person, if they are over the age of 18, any statement that they make about affirmative action that is directed at black people, I just automatically categorize that as a conscious 
willful, deliberate act of white supremacy. I do not ever chalk that up mm-hmm. to them being unconscious or I unaware <laughs> because it's not even factually accurate. If we want to get a poster child for the person, mm-hmm. the group that has benefited most from affirmative action, let's white go women. grab Becky and put her up here and ask her what she thinks about <laughs> affirmative action. And that's what should be done every time. If I was ever anywhere, I would even be willing to put a grade on the line. Probably anyone ever did that to me. That would be the codified response. This was in Time magazine. I'm not saying anything controversial. This is why that's why I said white people would never get the benefit of the doubt that they just don't know this. Every time it's done to be racist, to make the black person feel bad, to damage your Mm self-esteem, make you justify that you deserve to be on this campus. You should be proud that we allowed you little ignorant. What might be the guy guy that's trolling the group? You all are ignorant. You're low IQs. We allowed you to come here. You don't even deserve to be here. (laughs) The group that that would apply to would be white women, hands down. Every time in the evidence, it's obvious that they have been the ones that have came up the most from this. And it never even gets associated Mm -hmm. with white women. Just mandatory to get that in right, exactly. every time, every time affirmative action comes up and hopefully we appreciate it for sure. Yeah, preach. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so back to the mandatory <laughs> education component that the university officials, including Fanta all that I just read her statement has said they do not think mandatory education would work. They don't think that this would help uh, alleviate the problem. You all disagree. Why do you disagree? And if you could include in that, um, what, yeah. this, what this would look like, the mandatory education. So I would just like to add that I was also um, in Students Against Sexual Violence. We had a really huge push for mandatory education, um, or, you know, surrounding sexual assault on campuses um, because it's a huge problem in our college campuses. And we've had this same issue where it's not the fact that they don't like it about race. They just don't like mandatory education, period. Mm-hmm. Um, they really believe in this freedom of speech BS and crap, honestly. Um, and they really feel that as their reason to not make anything mandatory. However, we still have classes where, like, that are mandatory for majors that could easily facilitate. Because, like, even if you didn't want to make a mandatory education and orientation, you still need to revamp your curriculum to mm-hmm. where there are mandatory classes that people can take that have, like, the component of race that needs to be talked about. Like, we have a class, Cross-Cultural Communications and International Studies. International Studies is the second largest um, major, it's not the first, on American University's campus. That is a mandatory class for a major where race can be talked about. Perfect class. Mm-hmm. We need to, but it's just that not. class is mainly for us to learn how to talk to people from other cultures and interact. Race is like an important aspect of that that needs to be talked about. Mm-hmm. And we said we use it as, we mask it as culture and then like don't talk about like the privileges that we have. And only certain our professors will do that. Um, mm-hmm. So again, like these are places where AU really revamp and they don't. So to to there's a few things. First of all, we've alluded plenty of times to you know how, why voluntary forms just don't work. So that's right. the first reason why we want mandatory education because if it's if it's left up to people to choose whether they want to talk about race, mm-hmm. people who are who need to talk about it are not going to choose to do so. So that's number one. Number two, as Emma was saying, what's it going to look like? We wholeheartedly. Um, acknowledge that we are students and we are not faculty. Um, so, you know, I, hate, I always kind of laugh a little bit when 
the faculty or the administration looks at us as students and says, well, what will this class look like? And, you know, we look back at them and say, you guys are the ones who went to school for this. So, you know, <laughs> it should probably be up to you guys to figure that out. But what MM was saying was cor correct. There are mandatory classes for most majors. Um, and for SIS, um, School of International Service, cross-cultural communication is the best example. You need to take that class already. So why not just infuse these requirements into those classes that are mandatory to talk about where racism comes from and like how it affects ethnic minorities because the cross-cultural uh, communication class as it is now is more about how, you know, white people should act when they go abroad, um, pretty much. I mean, right. not to throw too much data at SIS, but literally that's what it's about, how to be white and go to, like, the Middle East, um, how to be white but, and go to Africa, how to be I white mean, and go to Latin America. And that, you know, yeah. that could be done so much better. And I think that no matter what major you are, you know, if half of the problem is our faculty and administration do not agree or do not understand our definition of structural racism. Because if they did, there would be no question that it could be implemented in any major because racism affects black people in every fact of life. So if I'm an econ major, I should have a, a, I can have a required class that talks about how uh, capitalism and how this country um, was built on using black bodies uh, to sustain the economy. Like, why can't we have that conversation? If I'm um, an American studies major, there's no question, so I'll skip that one. <laughs> but if I'm a political science major, that one's pretty clear, too. If I'm a literature major, we can talk about the disparities in what we consider classic versus not classic novels in a while. Like, all of these, all of these majors, anything that you would be learning in college has an aspect of it that has to do with white supremacy. The re the way it's taught is because of white supremacy. So the excuse that, you know, there's no way that we can force people to talk about race um, isn't one that we accept. Um, I don't think that the administration, faculty, or whoever it is um, is in charge of the curriculum is being creative enough or understanding what racism really is enough to really work to make sure that everyone at AU is able to understand how whatever field they go into or whatever major that they have can and will perpetuate racism unless they learn otherwise where racism right. comes from and how their field continues to perpetuate it. And I think that it really just stands a test of, like, our curriculum right now at American University still reflects, like, what it was, what American University was created for, which is for white people. And, mm -hmm. like, going back to the SIS, because, you know, that's my school, it's very evident. I mean, like, most of the professors are white. We've had, um, from my knowledge, we've had brown and black professors apply for jobs there, and they've specifically about gotten it, quote, because they do not fit the SIS culture. I don't know what that means, um, but regard, you know, and when you look at classes like cross-cultural communication, that needs to be revamped, especially because it really, when I took that class, I learned nothing. I mean, it was just really just learning academic, like academic words and vocabulary from my experiences, but it didn't teach me anything about how to, you know, interact with white students, and it didn't teach mm -hmm. white students how to interact with me, unless you had a good professor who's willing to go that route and really risk you know, having that conversation because, right. um, you know, it does, 
I think it is really risky, and I think a lot of the pushback may come from, oh, at least from professors that they're, you know, they're just really too scared to have a conversation like that. Right. And I know that many of the faculty I've talked to, they want to have that conversation, but they don't know how to facilitate that because, again, I think they're just being very mindful of the fact that, like, they really have no authority when talking mm-hmm. about race. So to facilitate such a conversation, how should they do that? And then, right. you know, that comes into the next issue. I think professors of color. <laughs> Yeah, I think now is a good time to point out that we have a lot of faculty support um, yeah. in literature department, anthropology department, sociology department. Um, um, we have very clear support from faculty that, you know, these are the things that we should be doing um, with our curriculum. It's just not um, overall, like, that's still a minority of professors at AU. It is still, and the administration has come out saying that mandatory education is not something that they want. Um, so that's where the struggle really is. It's not. It's not that there aren't anybody. There isn't anyone at AU who is with us. It's just overall the administration has come out saying no to mandatory education, um, and the faculty overall haven't come together and said we're going to do this because if they did then, you know, we would be further along in this conversation. And I, um, I definitely feel I have a lot of empathy for some of our faculty because, you know, I think that especially just this past semester, tensions have really rise. Um, and it's very evident. And I just finished talking to a very well, um, very amazing professor here at American University. And she did emphasize how, like, you students may be feeling it, but we're feeling it too. And it's very, very scary, and it's just a very eerie feeling to have on campus. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. We had uh, some listeners who dialed in who wanted to get some questions in uh, as well. Um, before I get to them, I just uh, wanted to give you uh, my perspective on the mandatory education component and, and get your thoughts. Um, surprisingly, I am in agreement with the uh, faculty in that I don't think that mandatory education would do much in terms of curbing uh, the racist behaviors of white students. And I take that Mm -hmm. position because there's, I guess, one of the major ways that people think about, conceptualize racism, white supremacy, and, and specifically how white people perform, practice, perpetuate white supremacy is that this notion that white people are just not informed that they just don't have certain information, they're not educated, they don't spend time around black people, so they just, they aren't aware of this. So if they just get the right information, that this will help correct some of these problems. And I have concluded that that is astronomically false, uh, that nobody is more informed Mm -hmm. about racism than white people. And I I would venture a white person, male, female, anywhere on this planet, by the time they are 15, they are pretty close to having a Ph.D. in racism. And I I even point when I look through (laughs) some of the yik yak posts and what have you. Now, these are white students that are presumably I mean, you do have non-traditionally aged students, but presumably these are probably some younger, younger white folks under 25 when they're saying black lives matter, but only Mm -hmm. three fifths as much. And you have another one. Coffee so black. I only drink three fifths of it. And. It reminded me, I said we mm-hmm. had students on from San Jose State. They had the incident at the end of 2013. They had a, um, a black student. He was a freshman. And his white uh, roommates, they terrorized him. They put a bike lock on his neck. They physically assaulted him. They called him Fraction. 
three-fifths nigger. They had swastikas uh, up around the area. Same thing. He went to the residence hall for assistance. Nobody helped him. And this just went on and on and on and on and on. Uh, And then finally they uh, Mm -hmm. expelled them. And now they have a big multi-million dollar lawsuit. But I point to those types of examples. When you have young white people who are demonstrating, they have a knowledge. Black people, you're not even a full human being. You're three-fifths. Now, that echoes all the way back to like 19th century white supremacy in this area of the world that to me suggests that you don't just Mm -hmm. understand racism you have a very sophisticated understanding of racism that has some historical context to it now when i say this i've had people push back and say well that they certainly haven't read uh, all of thomas jefferson's notes on the state of virginia and they don't know absolutely and i'm not saying that they know every tidbit about the history of how racism has evolved however they understand what it means to be white They understand how they are supposed to relate to black people and they understand that they will get in trouble with other Mm -hmm. white people if they are violating the racist code, the white code of conduct. And I just what I have seen when people I've been Mm -hmm. to the white privilege conference and I've been to these type of things where they have classroom settings and and what have you. And I I love the fact that you all had research to substantiate your claim that, hey, this does have an impact. What I've seen White people get very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. They refine. They take those type of courses and they learn, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, I can be racist, but this is how I can camouflage it so they won't think I'm racist. I'll be really good. I'll never slip up and say anything publicly racist. We'll just share all our little nigger jokes behind the scenes on Yik Yak and that sort of thing. But when we step out Mm -hmm. in front, we know the exact words to say. Fragility, inclusion, diversity, microaggression. Yep. Got it all. Boom, 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 boom. We can even rattle off ta coats, Tim Wise. <laughs> they can do it all, and they're still practicing racism. If anything, what I've seen, the people I mean, that need I think that, that's AU right now. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the issue with American University in particular is that we are considered, uh, we're considered politically active, very yeah. progressive. Um, the students here uh, identify as liberal, for the most part, there are definitely Republicans here, but identify as liberal, um, identify as accepting of all people, especially LGBT plus people, uh, they, they claim to be colorblind, etc. And I think that in the university setting, that the university itself cannot claim to, to support students of color without having this mandatory education. I agree with you that, you know, mandatory education does not change um, an over-racist necessarily from being racist. But as a university, we we cannot not teach people the history uh, of African-Americans in this country and what this country has done to African-Americans and and expect even those who identify as liberal and those who identify as colorblind, et cetera, to understand what is going on today. Because that is why the darkening started in the first place, because we were trying to address things that were going on in the country, um, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and it was nearly impossible to have these discussions with students who did not, you know, you know, act overtly racist and did not consider themselves to be racist, but had no understanding of how what happened, what happened with police brutality is connected with what happened uh, with the Jim Crow, which was connected with slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's hard for, to put it on your black students to teach these things. And I, I agree with you that, you know, having mandatory education or having education does not necessarily change 
you as a white person who is racist from being a racist to all of a sudden magically not being a racist. But I think in the university setting, in an educational setting, there is no excuse to not have it. Um, and I think that, you know, the dark name, we're very clear that it is because we're at an American university, it's because we're at a school that considers itself to be politically active, to be accepting, um, and, you know, that beautiful word they use all the time, inclusive, that we cannot continue to be, ignore this issue by not teaching students about it. It's one thing to say diversity and inclusion over and over, um, but it's another thing to have your curriculum reflect that. Uh, I think that's what we're advocating for in particular. And, you know, MM and I are involved outside of AU, and we probably will have a different answer for what to do about racism outside of AU. But as American University students, we have the ability to advocate for what we think our university should do um, for us and for other black students who come here. MM, did you want to respond? Um. No, I, honestly, I feel that um, because of mandatory education, like you had mentioned, I mean, you know, these white people just end up, you know, changing how they, how racist they can be, you know, overtly in public. And honestly, like that's just what I see right now at AU um, mm-hmm. with a lot of these liberal kids. Um, however, I still believe that um, in order to in order to truly affect the cultural and personal racism. Uh, within structural racism, you really need to get at the institution. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, and this is like my beliefs just even overall, if you can change the norms and reform and destroy an institution and rebuild it to actually be truly representative of all, um, those cultural, the cultural racism that exists will soon to like, you know, be dismantled and will no longer exist. What fuels these personal, you know, personal feelings and the cultural um, racism that we see is the institution. It's backed up by an institution. Um, Mm -hmm. And those will no longer exist. So if we can, and again, like for me, and I mentioned this earlier to Tatiana, um, I really don't care about racist white people. Um, Mm -hmm. I can fight them all day long. Like, you know, like I really don't care. My problem comes in when my administration refuses to see my humanity and back me up when issues like this happen. If a kid calls mm-hmm. me a nigger or threatens my life, I know I should be able to have confidence in my administration that I pay for to support me in that effort of not allowing him to do that and taking away his power. But here at AU, that's not happening. So I, don't, I know that there's going to be racist white people regardless, but I don't want my institution to be like that. Mm-hmm. And we're students here, um, MM and I, and all the students who are participating um, in activism, we all are the customer um, here. So we have the ability to advocate for what we want from the university that we are paying um, near $60,000 a year. So, you know, it's, it's very um, institution-specific is what I'll say. My opinion of how to address racism in the world is probably uh, very different from what I think the university should be doing um, because it's an educational like institution. Mm. Good. I appreciate the uh, 
the difference there uh, in terms of context, what you would do in the university setting versus versus elsewhere. Uh, I'm just uh, I mm-hmm. hit the callers. I'm just I'm reminded of a quote from one of our uh, admittedly racist uh, guests who was on the program before, and she said, uh, "You cannot oh. wake up someone who is pretending to be asleep." And she said that in the context of white people pretending to be ignorant uh, about racism uh, and mm-hmm. saying that uh, white people, basically she was saying that white people are not ignorant. <laughs> they are informed. They know what's going on. You cannot right. be a yeah. white person and, and be uh, be clueless. Uh, but the folks that had questions, uh, the number mm-hmm. again is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Uh, press star six if you have a question. Uh, we will go right down the line. Oh, we have a caller who's in your backyard. Caller in the D.C. area. Did you have a question for our two courageous guests, uh, Tatiana Lang, Imem Obat? Uh, your line should be open. Caller at five six four zero. Hello. Oh yes, yeah. ma'am. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We can hear. Hey, yeah. Hi. Uh, oh, hi. Uh, Oh, great. Good evening. Uh, hi. Thank you, ladies, and I appreciate your courage and, and what you stand for. But I wanted to ask um, not to discount your experience at a white, traditionally white university, but did you ever consider attending an HBCU when you were uh, <laughs> looking for colleges? Yes, um, I did. I considered Howard. However, they don't have my major. I'm an international studies major, um, so, you know, that was kind of out of the question. Um, also, it was really hard to be able to get a, not a scholarship, but any, like, grant money or um, financial aid mm-hmm. from Howard. Um, I think a lot of people know, especially with Howard students who had the real AU, it, the real Howard issue of It was H-U. take back ATU. <laughs> yeah, take back ATU. There you go. God, mix up the hashtags. But, yeah, um, you know, when looking at that, it was really hard for me. But I just... I chose AU because they were the best when it came to international studies and really the location. Um, but it's honestly, if I were to switch my major, I'd go straight to Howard. So, you know. I mean, also, um, as, uh, as a senior, it's something that I've uh, had the opportunity to think about a lot. Um, and one thing that I do know is that it's far too late for me to transfer schools right now. Um, so I, you know, I feel as though everything happens for a reason. And, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. Right. But if I hadn't come to a right. university, then I wouldn't have found the voice that I have right now. I wouldn't have found, um, you know, a way to a way to talk about these issues Um the way that I have now. Not saying I wouldn't have had education because I definitely would have had education at Howard. That wouldn't have been the issue. Um, but the circumstances that I ha- am, have been in as an undergraduate at American University have largely shaped who I am as someone who's about to graduate from college and go out into the real world, per se. Um, and I, that is the way that I like to look at it. Um, I, I can only account for what is happening, um, where I am, and um, who I am as a result of that. 
Excellent, excellent. And then the last question I have is, um, now, since you are students at American, which is wonderful, have you taken, uh, have you participated in the consortium where you can take classes or maybe take a class at Howard? Because I understand at Howard, I know that the issue of the mandatory education, you know, uh, example, uh, there are actually courses like that at Howard. So I wasn't sure if you ladies have taken advantage of the consortium of universities to take such a class. Especially at Howard, um, and, and that'll be my question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my answer is there are pretty great courses at AU um, around this issue, and the issue is that they're not mandatory. So myself and probably MM have taken as many of these uh, courses that we would consider good. Uh, around the issues of race, whether uh, I'm interested in the criminal justice system. So I've taken plenty of classes that have to do with the intersections of race um, and the criminal justice system or the intersections of gender and the criminal justice system, et cetera. Mm. It's not necessarily that there is an absence completely of options if this is something that you want to learn, but it's the, the fact that you have to voluntarily uh, do it, which is what we're advocating about with you know, advocating for a mandatory education, but I'll let MM answer. Um, yeah, I have not been able yet to take any courses at Howard specifically, um, and because of the way my major is set up, which again needs to be revamped, um, I'm not really even able to take that many courses at all when it comes to anything um, that really regards to um, just the intersective race, um, not until my about junior or senior year when it comes to my core classes. So again, this is where I've decided to now minor in sociology where the conversation of race is a lot more prevalent in that major. And um, I then have some type of leeway to be able to go to Howard and take more classes there. Um, yeah. The problem with it, like, you know, we have African studies that listed as a gen ed area but we don't have any teachers to teach it like they're all adjuncts honestly and mm -hmm. you know it's when they feel like getting paid the you know 10 cents by au to come teach the class so <laughs> it's really up in the air i mean i'll add briefly that you know we uh, one of my favorite classes this semester is my class about civil rights um and it's it was a class that was previously taught by the late Julian Bond um, at American University, and it used to be the oral histories of civil rights. Um, but the way that the class is taught now is kind of like debunking um, what we saw about African American history in regards to the civil rights movement, and kind of t just you know as simple as talking about what actually happened um, in the era of American history, because as we know, our high school curriculums do not adequately teach us anything right about African-American right. history. So I'm having a great experience this semester in this class, um, and, but that's because I chose to take the class. And I think that's, that's a good example of why we want mandatory education, because this class is here. Um, but in my class, it's all like-minded people. There's not one person in my class who, who didn't sign up to take a class to learn about what actually happened during the civil rights movement and who didn't choose to like better their understanding of race um, in America. Yeah. Uh, 
Thank you so much for your responses and best wishes in your academic and professional pursuits. Take care. Thank you. For sure. Uh, caller in Florida, retired firefighter, you should be next. I just wanted to ask really quick, uh, are either of you familiar with Dr. Frances Cress Welsing? She's a resident in D.C.? No. Oh, okay. She uh, she used to be a professor at uh, Howard University. She's a black female. She, as I said, she's an author. She was in the documentary uh, film Hidden Colors, uh, several of them actually. Um, and she talks about mm-hmm. racism all the time. She's uh, she has spent mm-hmm. about the last fifty years uh, studying in depth. She is a general and child psychiatrist. Uh, she talks. Her book is about white supremacy. It's uh, called The ISIS Papers, and she does a uh, free lecture uh it's the first thursday of every month it's on the campus of howard university at 7 p.m uh it's free uh, i bet she would be tickled to death uh, to see uh just you know courageous intelligent young uh black female scholars uh, and you're working against racism i bet she would love to hear about you know what you all have been experiencing and you know your thoughts on racism it's uh if you i know you all are super busy but it, i guess the next one would be uh the second thursday in November, so that's November twelfth at seven p.m. It's free mm-hmm. if you all want to want to check it out and uh, hear what she has to say. But I bet she would really dig hearing from you all. Uh, let's see. We'll definitely take note of that. Yeah, thank you. For sure, for sure. If you go, tell her uh, that you were on the cows. She's <laughs> been on our program a lot. <laughs> um, call her in Florida. Uh, you should be with us. Feel free. Greetings, <laughs> greetings, Gus, and and the uh, the guests. Um. First, I would like to uh, commend both of you young ladies and your efforts uh, to uh, uh, work against the system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, I view it it as being very important, uh, especially uh, for someone who is uh, in the atmosphere to improve themselves academically and to uh, move on in life. Uh, uh, are any of you, any, any of you uh, parents? Uh, are we parents? No. No. <laughs> well, hopefully in the future you would be. Uh, in, in, at, 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 I'm pretty sure uh, uh, children would be glad to have two parents, like two future parents like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, with the advent of the uh, power that's at that university uh, not granting you your request, uh, what are you prepared to do in the aftermath of that? Um, (laughs) I'll say, you know, I don't think that the process of us, you know, making our demand is completely finished. Um, you know, we've had a lot of media attention lately, and that is pretty much the only reason, you know, that we've gotten a response from the university right now. So I think, you know, other than us asking the university for mandatory education, we have programming ourselves, and we have things that we are getting the undergraduate uh, student government to do, like mandatory racial sensitivity training um, for all student leadership. So we're working on a ton of things at the same time, but as far as what are we going to do next uh, with the university, we don't think that this is a campus life issue, um, and really the only response that we have gotten are from the Office of Campus Life. 
So, you know, we have been trying to direct our voices and our activism more towards the provost office and the faculty senate and the people who actually have an effect on what the curriculum at AU is. So I think a logical next step for us would be to, you know, now that we have this attention um, and this momentum to try again um, to reach those people who actually have power over what our education at AU looks like. Yeah. Yes. Uh, last question. Uh, could you share with us uh, your your plans uh, as far as uh, working against the system of racism, white supremacy after you graduate from college? Oh, <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to go first. Yeah, so um, I've actually really come to terms with this, and I've decided that you know, I do have an international perspective and approach, um, and I plan on having a focused region of Latin American Caribbeans and focusing on the, uh, you know, the effects of white supremacy within that region especially, not that it's not prevalent anywhere else. Um, and I will go back to, like, my country, Nigeria, too, um, so that's later on in my career. But first, I do <laughs> want to start in the Caribbeans and Latin America, focusing on white supremacy and anti-blackness there. It was really apparent that, um, for me at least, especially looking at the DR and Haiti situation um, and seeing how the elements of anti-blackness are so apparent, yet it was never really called out by the UN or really anybody in that matter. Um, mm-hmm. So I just really want to start having a serious conversation about race within the international um, relations realm. Yes. Right on, right on. Yeah. As a senior, I personally, as someone who's going to graduate very soon, have been very uh, battling with this internally. What am I going to do about white supremacy when I graduate? Um, My answer to that question is that I think that there are little things that we can do um, in our working lives uh, to combat white supremacy. And my personal interest is the criminal justice system. So for me, it's really about, it's really about, I wouldn't say reforming because the whole entire system is wrong. So it's really about focusing my advocacy on the criminal justice system and the fact that its purpose was to oppress and suppress black people and to do something about that. You know, that's a very broad statement because I don't know what job I'm going to have, <laughs> but that's my goal. I mean, that's my goal in life um, to do something about the fact that our criminal justice system was made for that and has been able to continue doing that uh, without, without any change since in all of American history. Wow. I am so proud of both of you two young ladies. Wow. <laughs> I, Thank I, I mean, you. Oh man, this is, this, this made my day to, just to hear, just to hear you two. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing and uh, keep learning. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. for coming Thank on. You. Right on, right on. Are you all familiar with uh, Clarence Lusane? He's at uh, American University? Yes. Oh, okay. He's he actually no longer, he actually no longer teaches at AU. He's now the, the director of the political science um, department at Howard as of last year. I wonder why. We are aware of him. Oh, good. <laughs> right on. I'm a big fan. He's been on our program. Big fan of, of his work. He has a lot of, a lot awesome. of great His books are really great. Aren't they? Fantastic. Pipe Dream mm-hmm. Blues. Excellent. Pipe Dream Blues. Exactly. Uh, 
the uh, person that dialed it, he has more than more than that. Hitler's African Victims is really good, too, if you want to go the inter- mm-hmm. international perspective. That's a A-plus as well. Can't go wrong with Clarence yeah. Lussain. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a question for our lovely guests? Yes, I do. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening to the guests. Greetings. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I have some questions for you, but before I got into them, I just had a few comments. Um, Gus made a great point earlier, I'll get to that, but I think the most most of the anonymous comments that's being posted, basis anonymous comments that's being posted, um, are being posted by the people that you consider to be your white allies and white friends, uh, which is probably why it's anonymous. Um, also, um, as for the biological inferiority um, comments that were made, um, Gus just mentioned Dr. Francis Seth Wells, and please go get her book, The ISIS Papers. It will give you the ultimate comeback to that because uh, what you had to do was post a picture of President Obama or Halle Berry or something to show that blacks are way more dominant biologically than uh, whites. Um, um, and also, he got brought up that uh, white women benefit from um, affirmative action, action more than black people. Also, white men, too, um, with disabilities, learning disorders, and handicaps also get more jobs than black people based off of affirmative action. So just to throw a little tidbit, um, my questions, um, you know, I commend you guys for what you do. Um, some of the things you said I might be giving a little pushback on, but I was um, listening to you guys, and I'm a little confused if you're trying to end racism or if you're looking for white validations. Um, can you guys huh. comment on that? <laughs> um, <laughs> the answer to the question is we're trying to end white supremacy yeah um, but uh, I'm assuming you're asking this because we're focusing on educating people um, is that correct a few things you said is why I'm saying it it's not just that okay um, would you like to elaborate Yes. <laughs> Hello. Oh, Thomas, are you still with us? They were, they were hoping you could. Uh... Oh, okay. I was waiting for the answer. They were saying that oh, we just wanted you to elaborate. We're asking you to elaborate. All right. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that question. Hopefully, by the rest of my questions, you'll get the elaboration because it'll just be repeating itself for those. You know, you guys have a work racism, a racism workshop to get into your group. And I would say that you guys have white members of your group, am I right? Correct. Before I get to my main question, do any of these white members have um, sexual relationship with the black members of the group? Uh, No. What? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. That's not, if they do, that's not a concern, first of all. Second of all, um, it's really irrelevant to the uh, conversation at hand. Um, and I, you know, you like, talk no. about um, racism, right? You, you talk about racism, and I ask if any of the white members of your group uh, are in sexual relationships with the black members of the group. Now, that's a racist We don't know the answers racism. of that that's, question because yeah. we don't ask people about I don't ask about people's sexual life. I don't care. I don't care about the racism on campus, not what they're doing behind closed doors. Um, um, especially, that's a really personal question for us to ask. Yeah, we just I don't met, so. think that really, in my opinion, has much to do with what we're trying to advocate. I feel for. as though I feel as though you're trying to ask another question, like 
codedly, so if you could just ask, yeah. that would be great. You can be blunt with us, it's fine. <laughs> well, all right, so the question I was going to ask is, um, do you guys really think white people need a workshop on racism? Do you think that they're ignorant and unaware that this is going on, that they're mistreating black people? Okay, so that's an easier question for me to answer, yeah. because I think that the workshop is beneficial for everyone, black people, white people, Hispanic right. people, etc. Um, I, it is my belief that if you grew up in the United States and you had a public school education or a private school education and you uh, learned your social cues from the media, from television, from the news, etc., that you will have some things to unlearn about racism in this country. This is whether you're black, white, Hispanic, etc. So when I first had the opportunity to go through these kinds of trainings about racism, as someone who was an advocate for racial justice, I was still able to learn things myself. So, you know, to put it in terms of do I think white people need to learn X or Y, I think that everyone who has had the unfortunate um, experience of of American education um, needs to have these conversations and needs to unlearn their uh, their biases um, and some of the things that we are taught to know about race and racism in this country. I think it's really also important to emphasize, and I think I've seen this on campus also, but it's a completely different discussion. I'd rather not talk about it, but just to emphasize that um, white supremacy, you don't have to have white skin to uphold or um, perpetuate white supremacy. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, like I know a lot of black people, even at our school, who still uphold and will throw around, like, you know, white supremacy tactics and just things, you know. And um, it's important for everybody to go through this workshop. It's important for everybody to unlearn these things. Like, even within our own community, the black community, there are a lot of things that are perpetuated um, that were taught by, taught by us. Um, and from us, like from white people and whiteness, and, the idea of whiteness, and, and that's something that we have to unlearn too in order to even go to liberation. And I would add also on top of that that if we are fighting white supremacy, then it doesn't really matter to us, the individuals who are in the room, because white supremacy is bigger than individuals. So, you know, whether whether the room is majority black or majority Hispanic or has a few white people, et cetera, isn't the focus. If you're focused on ending white supremacy, then it's a lot bigger of a conversation than am I focused on the person that's sitting in front of me because white supremacy has infused itself into our government, our education, our social cues, our culture. Um, and that's not just America, that's globally. So, you know, you asked the initial question, like, are we here to white, fight white supremacy? And the answer is yes. And that's why uh, we don't necessarily care who it is that we're you know, having these workshops with because it's the white supremacy that we're fighting. We're not fighting the people who are sitting in front of us. Okay, I totally agree with um, a lot of what you guys said, but um, you wouldn't have white supremacy without white people. And I think white people are very aware of racism, the history of racism. They like the books. They know it all. Uh, I think that you guys should be challenging the white people to give you that, uh, the people that are in your group to give you information about the other white people who are practicing racism. Um, I mean, you know, we can I do that pretty well. Have any of these yeah, we, we, de- we definitely, uh, the people who we consider um, allies um, are 
on the same page as us. I mean, they yeah. are just as keen to call out racism and hold other white people accountable, or as you say, yeah. give information um, <laughs> about uh, the other white people on campus who are uh, perpetuating racism. So if that's what you're concerned about, then, you know, our our allies are doing that already. Um, and I'd also like so to yeah. push back that, like, the idea of white supremacy, you need white, it is true that you need white people for white supremacy, but you only need them to create it. After that, mm-hmm. you don't need them. You see, like, yeah. countries in Africa where white supremacy is still very rampant and still very real, and they don't need white people to uphold it at all. I, white supremacy and whiteness is an ideation. And once mm-hmm. the ideation is given any type of power, it doesn't need the creator anymore to, you know, maintain it. Exactly. The system that was put in place by white people um, long ago and has been, you know, maintained by white people, as MM has pointed out, has continued to, you know, disadvantage people of color all over the world and places where there are absolutely no white people. Um, so, I think that's important to note um, when we're having this kind of conversation. Okay, um, well, my question was going to be was, um, and I guess you're trying to answer it. Have any of your white friends or allies come back to the group, giving you names of people who are saying racist things, committing acts of racism, informing yeah. you about what their friends and family say, and discuss about black people when no black people are around? Yep. Yes. Uh, I can I can assert with 100% um, certainty that not only does that happen, but that happens all the time. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yes, the answer to your question is unequivocally yes. Yep. Well, I need to go to that university, man. Did you say go to university? Wow, yes. that's the only place in this country that's happening. <laughs> well, you're free to come um, visit us at any time. Uh, we'd love to you know, introduce you. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, and I'll, I'll end the rest of my questions there. Thank you. Have a good thank night. In the game. Uh, caller in Michigan, did you have a question for our guests? Tatiana, email. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Gus, and to your guests, I'm uh, really uh, enjoying the dialogue. I do have a few questions. Um, the first question is, I guess I want to kind of continue to the, the the discussion about your allies. What mm-hmm. qualifies a white person to be your allies? I'm just trying to understand. Um, when you say what qual- when you say what qualifies, um, can you clarify um, what you're asking? Well, what how, about what, them? What, yeah, what are you? What is your definition, or what do you mean when you say allies? And mm-hmm. what makes so, them an ally? Yeah, so an ally to me is somebody who really knows their, who has a passion for that injustice, who wants to eradicate that injustice, but also knows their place and understands their privilege in that area and in that aspect and uses it um, when asked to help the oppressed. So, Mm -hmm. like, my white friends who are know very well about racism and um, I've actually learned a lot from them about racism at least when it comes to like theoretical ideas and um, you know concepts uh, they use their privilege at least like for example in protests like they will put themselves between me and the police to make sure that a police will not put its hands on me because they know that a police will not 
attack them or when, you know, we have organized, and this is away from AU at least, but just in general, like organizing protests, um, usually when it comes to like face-to-face confrontation with police officers, white allies come to the front and they will scream police officer's face because they know that a police officer won't put their hands on a white ally. You know, they understand their privilege and they use it um, when necessary and when needed. Um, on our campus, our allies truthfully are amazing um, because at least especially within our, you know, um, organization, they really do understand their privilege at American University and they use that. Um, they know the fact that administration will listen to them. White voices will listen to their concerns over ours. And they use that by constantly um, being out there and speaking up for us. You know, they give a voice to the voiceless because we can run around and rant all day about how we feel when it comes to AU, but no one's really going to listen to us because we're a minority. So at the end of the day, like, it really is just rallying the people who truly do care, not to say, not to do it just because they don't want to seem racist, but people who actually do care about this in AU and outside of AU yeah. to help give voices to us. And that's an and also. And also just people who, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we as an organization do a ton of things at the same time. Um, and the people who I consider allies are working as hard as I am and as hard as MM is to, you know, put on the programming that we have and to plan and execute the demonstrations that we have yeah. and to talk to, to everything that we're doing. Um, they're doing it alongside us and they're uh, taking cues from us and, as I said, they know what their privilege is. They know, you know, when it is time for them to use it. Um, and if they don't know when it's time for them to use it, then that's when they defer to us. Mm-hmm. So yeah. ally, ally isn't just something that, you know, a white individual decides for themselves, um, in my opinion. Um, it's wholeheartedly my opinion that the group, if we're talking about racism, the uh, black people will know when an individual is their ally or not. Yeah. Um, that we black people are the ones who will make that dis- distinction. Okay. Um, how many just roughly allies do you all have on your campus? That's an interesting um, question. Um, we go to a predominantly white university. <laughs> um, uh, as early on the show, we, you know, we're giving the percentages. I think students of color are 23 or 26% or something. I don't know. Something like that. Um, and, and in our organization, you know, we have probably an equal amount of uh, white people to black people, but in our leadership, um, I'd say they're two out of seven. Yeah. Two out of seven. Okay, so um, my question is, you said that the university or the administration, for the most part, will listen to your white allies before they listen to you all. I'm just kind of paraphrasing what, I, what I'm mm-hmm, trying to mm-hmm. understand what you said. And so are your white um, allies, um, I heard you mention a few incidents that happened to you and you reported it or you have the, well, they're not going to do anything. Um, I've heard you mention that. So what are your white allies doing to, um, I guess, get justice for you or seek some type of um resolution to the mistreatment that you've experienced personally? Yeah, like I said, um, I think, first of all, at least when it comes to leadership, the two allies that we have are very um, 
a lot of power on our campus, honestly, um, and they are in some student leader positions. So I think that that works out to our benefit because if anything were to happen to us or if we decided to make public, like, you know, the threats that have been made uh, against us, it could easily, you know, bring about a lot of um, public support and also on our campus and bring more light to, you know, administration. Um, so, also, I mean, I mean I'll, yeah. Go ahead. I'll add that, no, you know, yeah. the, the allies that I, well, the people that I consider to be my allies, I've only, you know, considered them because of actions that I have been able right. to witness. Um, so, you know, in class when, you know, a uh, professor says something crazy like they do about racism or not necessarily about racism, but, you know, a microaggression of some kind, it's at that time where, you know, I obviously stand up for myself, um, but when there's an individual who is not black but is, you know, actively rebutting what that professor is saying and actively fighting against, you know, the notions that that professor is creating uh, as equally as I am, I mean, that in itself doesn't, you know, define that person as an ally to me, but that is something that an ally can do and will do. And if a professor is coming from a place of privilege um, and does not, and does not, you know, consider what I have to say as a black woman to be, you know, of weight than when I have uh, classmates who are white who are able to stand up and hold their own in the conversation as well as I can, um, or almost as well as I can, then that, you know, that's something that I have to account for at a predominantly white university. I think that, you know, it's important to take into context where MM and I go to school and what the demographics are here and what the demographics are for black students around the country who are at predominantly white universities um, and the pressure that's put on us to kind of explain these issues and how helpful it is when we do not have to because we do have allies um, who can help us out. Yeah, I mean, um, like, honestly, it should never be the job of the oppressed to explain their oppression. Um, mm-hmm. It's not our job to run around. It really shouldn't be on us. We already have to deal with the constant microaggressions and systematic inequalities against us. Why should we also have to now rally for um, our own cause? Like, that's not our job. We already, mm-hmm. our job is living right now. So and getting an education. Run around. And getting yeah, out. and getting an, <laughs> an education on top of that, which is really hard. It should yeah. also be our job to rally around for support in trying to change people's hearts and minds and an entire institution on our own mm-hmm. as, what, 7% of the the population? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we need help. Um, okay, my next question. I have two more questions, um, but mm-hmm. just really quick, this one before the other two. Um, are your white allies, are, do you, have you heard of any incidents where they have been threatened or do, are they fearful of their lives also? Um, I don't think I can speak on their experiences. I haven't heard any. None of them have really ever voiced uh, much concern, I think, for the safety of their lives. And I think that's, like, something that comes with privilege. Yeah, I think that's Um, a really good question because, you know, that's the kind of the point of having allies. They don't have to be afraid um, for their lives. Um, So, you know, the question of have any of our allies ever felt threatened um, the answer is no, probably. Um, I can't answer for them because I haven't asked them, but the answer is probably no, and that's the point. Um, 
they don't have to feel threatened. They don't have to feel threatened on top of their education um, the way that black students do. So, you know, I think it's important to note that MM and I and all the other black students at predominantly white universities, on top of facing racism, like that's not our entire purpose of being at university. As a matter of fact, it's not the purpose at all. So we're supposed to be, you know, getting an education um, and learning, but we also have to deal with this. So, you know, no, the answer to your question is no. I don't think that they have been threatened or feel threatened per se because of, you know, the work that they've been doing with us. But that is entirely the point of why they are working with, with us and why they're able to work with us um, in our endeavors here on campus. Okay. Um, thanks for answering that. Um, have either of you um, been in a relationship with a white person? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. And the last question, um, I thought I'd ask. I just wanted to ask. And the last question is, um, who do you think is most confused about um, racism, white supremacy, how it works, um, white people or non-white people? And why do you think whatever answer you, you give? And then I'll mute myself. Um, I, uh, I think that... I think that structural racism has a very um, disgusting and convoluted effect on people of color in America. So, you know, confused, who's most confused about it? Um, I would say, you know, in some instances, it's probably people of color, black people, because, you know, we're taught to think things about ourselves that we have to come to grips with when we're talking about racism overall. Like, meanwhile, in the mid-sentence of defending yourself, uh, against racism, you have to kind of confront like some of the opinions you've had about yourself or about other black people. Um, and this, in my own experience, in my time in college, it's not things that I say like, oh, you know, I'm afraid of X kind of person. But, you know, when in the world black men are being, you know, killed by the police, you have to step back and think, you know, why, why was I taught also to be afraid of like, these men like they're not doing anything to me um when i came to washington dc i was told this is one of the most dangerous places in the world (laughs) one of the most uh dangerous most crime ridden places in the world and those are the things that i was taught and told to believe so like uh, it it really is a confusing place to be especially you know when you're between 18 and like 22 years old and you're trying to learn you're trying to figure out who you are I think it's most confusing as a person of color who has grown up um, in this country and has grown up with, in my case, a public school education um, and has, like, you know, learned from television what we're supposed to learn about black people, right. which, isn't, which isn't necessarily positive things. So, you know, confused implies that there is some thinking going on, which is important. And which is why I would say people of color, because people of color have to confront and have to think about racism um, in everyday life. So I think that's what will lead to confusion rather than yeah. complete ignorance, which is what I would say would either, either complete either complete ignorance or knowledge and acquiescence um, yeah, and come from white people. Right. Definitely want to add on that. Um, the Yeah. When you use the word confusion, like, like Tatiana says, that means that there's some type of thinking. And I said this earlier that um, white people are really oblivious to race because they don't have to think about that. And that's their privilege. Like, they get to grow up in a world not having to think about that. We do all the time. And when you are taught all these narratives about how 
about what you are and um, what you're supposed to be, and it's obviously inferior to another, like, that constant confusion, I would definitely say that has to be people of color and black people, um, because you're really having to unlearn a bunch of um, theories and ideations against you, um, and I think that process is extremely tiring, extremely exhausting, and extremely, um, very intense. Um, And that's just something that um, will always be a struggle for black and people of color. Especially young black people. Especially. Well, thank you guys so much for um, answering my questions. I definitely um, appreciate you guys being on the program. And I also want to encourage you to listen to the archives of the cows. Um, I know for mm-hmm. me, it helps me to be less confused. And mm-hmm. um, I, I studied the archives just in my comings and goings, and I really would encourage you all to uh, listen to it as well. And thanks, Gus, for taking my call. Thank, Thank you. you. For sure. I didn't put her up to that. Uh, we had <laughs> uh, two other people that called in with questions. Do you have time for two other callers? Yes, I'm sure. Uh, Lashes, did you have a question for our callers in D.C.? Tatiana, uh, Imem, uh, your line should be open. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, Uh, maybe she'll (laughs) ring back. Call her at 1536-1536. Did you have a question for our guests? Hello? Yes, ma'am. No, I don't no, that's me, Tatiana. Oh. I don't think they're there. <laughs> uh, let's try one five three six. Are you uh, with us? One five three six. Making sure I didn't mess up on the switchboard here. If you hit your mute button, uh, just you know, untap so we can get you on the line. Uh, last four digits one five three six. Are you with us? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Maybe they. Uh, I don't know if their question got answered or if they're in a loud area. Loud oh, as- can I be heard? Oh, there we go. We got oh, you. Yep. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> oh, hello, brother Gus. Hello, Queen. How are we doing tonight? <laughs> I've asked yeah, repeatedly yeah. for people to not call me brother at any time for any reason. <laughs> Thank you kindly. I apologize, Queen. Oh, oh my God! God. Thank you so much. That is the best thing ever. Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, I I am very very touched, very touched in my heart to um, hear the great work that both of you are doing, and um, I I will share honestly that there were some moments when uh, frustration did mount at some of the things you said, but then I recalled that when I was your age. I, too, had some thoughts that made very good sense to me at the time. And yet, as I grew older, I realized, okay, these things aren't necessarily true much anymore, so we'll evolve. But um, I would like to ask you uh, if you've offered any workshops on black love, on black self-respect, on black Mm -hmm. dignity. So we, um, as an organization, no, because, you know, we have a we have a Black Student Alliance on campus and a few yeah. other uh, Black <laughs> ethnic groups who their main um, 
the main thing that they have been doing amazing, is, amazingly is just that, um, having events and dialogues around celebrating blackness. And as someone who, I used to be uh, the president of the Caribbean um, group here, I can tell you that that is wholeheartedly something that we do at American University within the black community, um, especially um, just being proud and um, of what it means to be black and um, what that means, because there are a lot of um, um, multicultural students here. So there's students here who are based in the Caribbean, who are based in Africa, um, as well as African Americans. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of conversation around um, blackness, um, as you say, black love, uh, black respect, all of those things. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, we have a Africa week coming up where one of the conversations will be just that. So. The answer is no, MM and I um, in our activism do not necessarily host those kinds of workshops, but only because they're, we, have, we have that going on here at AU already. Right. Have you read the wonderful autobiography of Sada? I haven't finished that, but I have. Yeah, uh, same. <laughs> in the process, I have not been able to finish it. <laughs> I can understand that it is. Um, it, it it does kind of bite at your mind, does it not? Yes. Um, <laughs> and finally, uh, I heard you speak uh, about privilege a couple of times and about um, racism as individually structuralized, um, institutionally, culturally, and what have you. And then, of course, I heard the new buzzword. Intersectionality. If uh, if you could give me one example since, well, the beginning of this country, when black women have benefited with white women, as white women gained some rights, that black women also gained it too. I I don't think that that's the case. I mean, when we're talking about intersectionality, we're kind of talking from a position of acknowledging that feminism um, or the definition of feminism now has not done anything at all for women of color, black women especially. So when we talk about wanting intersectionality, it's not about something that exists or about something that has been achieved at all whatsoever. Um, And I think M.M. and I will both completely agree that feminism... Feminism, I don't... Yeah, I don't don't consider myself myself simply a feminist. Um, I consider myself a black feminist or an intersectional feminist. So I I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for. (laughs) Yeah, intersectionality is something that really needs to be worked on, and feminism, like you had just mentioned, when comparing white and black women in this country and the history of it where white women have gained and black women have not is the perfect reason and why intersectionality, that buzzword, has come about because you have movements like feminism that are supposed to be inclusive to all women but actually only benefit white women, which, again, when you exclude race and you're not intersectional, you don't see how white supremacy is working within a movement like that. I asked I asked the question, and I did expect something similar to what you had said, actually. I asked the question because I, knowing the history of feminism, which okay. um, prior to the 1970s, feminism was a joke. It didn't exist. And the primary reason why it didn't exist was because after the suffragist movement, 
which, of course, women gained a lot of rights, um, they felt no need for it anymore, even though mm-hmm. black women were saying, we need your help. Um, mm-hmm. Feminism was an invention in the 1970s by, and this is admitted to, by the CIA. It was something that was, ad- that was admitted, that was created to fragment the movements which were coming together at that time. So I ask that question because it is dangerous. Um, I, I'm, I'm a very poor person uh, financially, and I, I see the dangers of intersectionality and the concepts that are being promoted at the level which you exist at and how they um, don't relate to where I'm at. I have so a question. Before we continue, wait, okay, yeah. hold on. I have yeah. a question for you. Um, yeah. Are you, so I'm assuming you don't consider yourself uh, a feminist, not even a black feminist. Well, I'm a male, no. <laughs> so as a man, you An don't ally? consider yourself, uh, no, 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 no. That's pretty much, that answered my question. I mean, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, anyone, male, female, et cetera, can be a uh, feminist or a feminist that I would define black feminist, intersectional feminist. And, um, you know, the, the way this conversation is going, I can already mm-hmm. tell that when you say, you know, the CIA created feminism to fragment the movements that were going on, you're probably referring to uh, the black power movement or, um, as MM and I like to say, like, you know, the black male-centered movement. Um, yeah. So I think that we are not shy about disagreeing with you on that, um, not shy about disagreeing uh, with you about, feminism, um, not white feminism, but the feminism that we define, um, the feminism right. that informs our activism, oh, in that I, everyone, anyone mm-hmm. can be one. It's, it's, I mean, it's a choice. Um, well, so, we can talk more about how it fragmented. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to know. That's what I would like to know. How I, do stand up for black right. I do stand up for black rights, and I do stand up for black rights for men, for women, for children. I stand mm-hmm. for the black family, and the black family is male and female and child. I don't, consider myself, <laughs> I don't consider myself a feminist because to be a feminist, I would then have to also be, I don't even know what the male, mass, I don't know, what do they call men if you are feminist? You know, because it doesn't matter about femininity is a concept. Exactly. And another feminism okay, feminism doesn't. Exactly. Feminism doesn't say anything about you and oppression, whether you're a man or a woman. Right. Feminism is feminism is a belief. Yeah. Feminism. Black feminism is a belief uh, that all women, not just white women, uh, deserve to have equal opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But I do believe that all men. That's I do believe the fact that you the fact that you believe it, but also practice it. Oh, you can then well on you believe things, but they don't actually practice it. The, it's the right. same as a, a white person can say, I don't believe, I believe racism is wrong, but they'll still do a bunch of microaggressions to me. And, it's really I, about, and I really want to emphasize your point on mm-hmm. intersectionality because um, there is a need for intersectionality, regardless of whether it's feminism or uh, race and feminism. However, you, I think mm-hmm. you had mentioned that you do say that you are for financially, um, intersectionality is where that comes in, at least with the Black Lives Matter movement and how you can obviously say that low-income blacks are not being, um, their voices are not being heard enough within Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter. 
um, that's intersectionality. Like, intersectionality does not just apply to feminism. Intersectionality mm-hmm. is a way to make sure that all voices are heard and all people who are oppressed are being heard and validated. And feminism, and... regardless of what you think of it, regard I you as a man will still be oppressed by the con- notion of femininity and masculinity, and you will never be liberated fully until you address how those constructs play in your life. And until also, we as a black yeah. community can constantly like combat those ideas and how masculinity and femininity and race intersect, we will never be liberated. And that's just mine. And also, um, on top of that, before you respond, until we address all of the issues facing black people, like domestic violence against black women uh, by black men, by black that men. Is not addressed it. That's not addressed in the you know black male centered movement. Then we will not right. be advocating for all black people. And you know, usually, I mean, like I said earlier, I knew where this conversation was going because usually when yeah. somebody says you know feminism um, distracted us or something like that, you know, that's because black women came out trying to talk about our feelings and patriarchy affects us and black men are like oh no never mind like we only care about like black and when you say no never mind we only care about black you're in essence saying black women's issues and the things that affect us are not important to the overall movement which is why we have to identify as intersectional people because if i just say I'm a black power person. The, I know that as that, that alone is not accounting for me and who I am and what I need and what I want to, what I want to be advocated for. Um, and, you know, I already know that we're going to continue to disagree because you already said, you, you know, black family, one man, one woman, blah, 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 et cetera. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we can either agree to disagree or whatever, but where MM and I are coming from, it's definitely from a point of intersectionality, definitely from a point of feminism, black feminism, um, which does not, um, you know, do anything negative for men at all. Um, and it's generally things positive for women. Um, so and I, mean, I completely mm-hmm. applaud that. Can I just be clear? When I said mm-hmm. the movement coming together, I was actually talking about black and white. Black and white. Yes. So you mean like black, black women and, and white women? They were talking, uh, at, at that time, they were facing, the government was facing the prospect of white radicals joining with black radicals and white school union and uh, demonstrations joining with other radical black school uh, demonstrators and unions. Mm -hmm. And the fear was that if those two groups got together and they were both pretty powerful separately, that it would create a new movement that would be both socially and politically viable and mount um, a major challenge to the um, resurgent conservative aspects, which were happening in the early 70s. That okay, was what so, I was talking about. So all of that being said, do you, or do you not believe that black women in particular deserve to advocate on behalf of black women's issues, such as domestic violence against black women, by or by, by black men, white men, et cetera? Which is do you, or white. do you not believe that yeah. black women should have a safe, to advocate for ourselves alongside... I've never argued either one of those. So I've never I'm said saying, that I do I'm not. Saying is most, if you look at black feminist literature, you will see that that is what it has been all along. So 
I, you know, was feminism okay. created by the was feminism created by the CIA to do X, Y, and Z? I mean, I don't know, but I know what black feminism is and what black feminism always has been and what okay. I identify as, and that's what I identify with. So you can either agree or disagree with that notion, um, and that's that's really the only thing that matters to me right now as a black woman who has to exist right now. I mean, my only thing is, like, as long as, honestly, men like you continue to have this narrative about femininity and feminism, um, especially for black women, we will never be liberated. And that's just a simple fact. And I constantly preach about this. Intersectionality is my thing. I pride myself on it because it's something that people need to understand and how it really affects. You need to understand that all these different ideations of patriarchy, racism, and capitalism, they all intersect and they all affect each other. There's a midpoint where they all meet. And we need mm-hmm. to understand that midpoint. Black people, we, we, as a community, we will never be liberated. We don't take out the patriarchy within our system. There's no reason mm-hmm. why black and brown people and couples should be having the highest inter-partner uh, uh, violence. No reason. Exactly. None whatsoever. What does that say so about us? There's something that we need to be constructed here. If we hang on, sir. Hang on, hang on, sir. Hang on a second, sir. Uh, yep. Because you got way more time than anybody else. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Thank you. No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right on. Have a good night. Right on. You too, sir. You too. <laughs> uh, we will pause there. Uh, hopefully, we can have you all back on the program. Um, to see kind of, I'm certain we will have people that kind of follow to see how things evolve uh, down at American mm-hmm. University uh, over the next few months and what have you. Um, so perhaps we can have you back on the program to continue the dialogue as things evolve and then other things that have come up as well. We can address that as well. Um, where should mm-hmm. folks, where would you encourage folks to go if they want to get more information to see what you all are talking about? What's the best place to get updates? Uh, the best place to get updates is definitely our Facebook like page. Um, it's mm-hmm. just uh, facebook.com slash the darkening AU. Um, and if you search the darkening on Facebook, it should come up. Um, so that that is the one, the only, and the best place to get the right information about what we do, who we are, um, and uh, the student perspective of what's going on at AU. Right. Outstanding. The Facebook page, it should be linked in the description. Uh, I know everybody doesn't listen at Black Talk Radio Network, but it should be linked right <laughs> here. If you uh, click on uh, the Darkening AU, it'll take you right to the Facebook group, and uh, I'll link it. I'll put it on the Twitter page and everything so that folks can uh, follow and stay up to date. I would definitely encourage folks to uh, keep an eye on this situation. And if you're in the D.C. area, support, man. It seems like they're open. Maybe you can go and, and see how you can. We're uh, very open. See? Go and we have list, uh, D.C. listeners. Some of them called in. Go support. Go to the Facebook mm-hmm. page. Get more information. Drop them a line and see when they're having the next meeting. You can go. You can attend. See how you can be involved. Mm-hmm. We try to encourage folks all the time. We have enough spectators. We need folks to be active, involved, engaged. Right there. We have people in the DMV area total, in fact, not just D.C. So if you're close, uh, 30 Mm -hmm. minutes or less, definitely you should uh, try to pick out an event, go attend and support uh, these courageous young black scholars who are doing outstanding work trying to combat white supremacy on their campus. Uh, And definitely let me uh, let me know. Let us know if you uh, go to the Welsing Institute uh, next month. I would uh, really be uh, encouraged to hear if uh, you checked it out, if if she had anything constructive to offer Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Or you can just check out her book, even if you you don't have time to do all that. You can check out her book at your leisure, uh, the ISIS papers. Thank you both so much. It was really a pleasure having both of you on the program. Uh, Tatiana Lang and Imem Obat. 
again, huge commendations for the great work that you're doing, and uh, we definitely will be can, uh, staying in touch and keeping an eye on your great work. All right. Thank, thank you so much. much, and have a great night. For yes. sure. You, and stay Bye. safe. Stay safe. Were you going to say something thank else? You. We will. No. <laughs> right on. <laughs> have a great evening. We'll speak soon. All right. Bye-bye. Good evening. Bye. Good evening. Context of white supremacy. Uh, the members of the darkening at American University. Uh, again, go to the Facebook page uh, as they encourage. You can get more information. You can get updates. Uh, and then I think if you if you're on Twitter, you can just put in uh, the hashtag the real AU, and you should be able to see some of the tweets. I think I read a few of them earlier. You should be some of the uh, some of the tweets that they shared. Uh, that, you know, just showing the trifling antics. And I think you'll even see some of the patterns where people who've been listening to this program and have heard these types of comments before. We've talked about them from uh, before from different uh, settings, young white people, older white people, the whole gambit. Uh, it can be a learning experience. Um, Real quick, again, we'll be back tomorrow. As I said, we should have a white person uh, on the program, uh, Mr. Branca. I will uh, post his blog or blogs, actually. Uh, he does a lot of writing uh, about gun rights, but, of course, the racism, white supremacy angle is there. Uh, it's supporting white people's rights to have guns and even white people's rights to have their guns and then go out and shoot and kill black people. Uh, but he should be with us tomorrow, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, very much looking forward to having him on the program. M1 suggested him uh, many, many years ago. Actually, it wasn't many years ago. It was about a year ago. A year and a half, maybe. Uh, early 2014. It just took a while because he was uh, very hesitant. It took a lot of words and wrangling uh, to get him uh, on the program. And, you know, you know typical, typical. Uh, anywho, uh, Julian Bowles mission. I forgot. Definitely uh, acknowledge Julian Bond. I mentioned before I've taken his uh, class when he was at the University of Virginia. Lots of constructive information uh, on racism, white supremacy, lots of great uh, literature. And he was uh, he was helpful to me before and after I took his class, even when I was a freshman and, you know, wasn't even enrolled in anything. And he was still uh, helpful and sat down. We had office hours the whole nine. Super helpful. Uh, did a lot to work against uh, racism, white supremacy. Even on that note, that would uh, that would be another cowbell thing because he was married to uh, a white person. And we did have a lot of conversations uh, about that back at the uh, at the time. I know that came up uh, during the program. That's definitely uh, an area I would definitely say is important. And anyone who's been listening to this program know that we ask that question and encourage that that should be something that gets uh, questioned, investigated. Uh, it is a major aspect of how white supremacy is practiced, manifested worldwide, has been for a long, long time. Uh, with that, uh, we were going to do the extra 30, but I am conserving my energy because we're going to be very active uh, this week. As I said, we should be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, I am pending on Wednesday, but we might be here uh, Wednesday as well. We're already supposed to be here on Thursday uh, talking about racism with education, academics. We will be here Friday for the book club. We'll be here Saturday for the compensatory call in. We'll be here Sunday. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the program, Daniel Holtzclaw, former Oklahoma City enforcement official, exclusively targeting black females. And as I said, now I haven't been able to check in the last three hours, but I checked before we went on the air and I saw nothing. His trial is supposed to start tomorrow. This guy's facing over 30 counts of being a sexual predator in Oklahoma City, exclusively targeting black females, more than a dozen black 
females, and the media has been very, very quiet about this for the last year and a half. Uh, we should have OKC artists for Jesslyn, uh, justice, OKC artists for justice. Uh, Miss Franklin Gray, she was on the program. Uh, I'll call it March. I think it was this year. She was on the program. We talked about this case in great detail. I would encourage folks to go back and listen to the archives. I told her then that we would have her back if she'd be willing to speak with us to address this case and make sure people do not forget about it and get swept under the rug. She said at the time she thought that was a part of why the trial was so far down the road. He was arrested in August of 2014, and the trial is not until uh, tomorrow. That's roughly a year and a half. All the other things that have happened in that time, people forget about it. They're not thinking. They're not paying attention. Just being abused themselves. And it just some, it's something that's not in your mind anymore. Hopefully this will work against that. And people will pay attention because this is hugely important. And we should definitely be paying attention. And whatever means you have, you have a blog, you have a video, YouTube channel, whatever the case, write. Make sure that people are talking about this. And this is not something that just is allowed to be minimized. Uh, with that enjoyed the exchange hope people uh, got some constructive information uh, i think i've said consistently that's been one of the main themes that i've uh, insisted upon the whole time we've been doing this program white people are not ignorant about racism uh, i certainly could be uh, in error i definitely encourage folks to uh, do your own thinking that's a big part of why we haven't solved this problem to begin with but uh, i definitely uh, take the position that white people are not ignorant they don't need any classes they don't need any pamphlets they don't need any brochures they are super informed and uh, even i think that it is it is it's connected it's the same concept that white people don't have to think about racism that is a very common uh, perception i hear that a lot from people and i just don't see any evidence that that's accurate uh, white people they think a lot <laughs> and i think the thing what the way that i typically say it is i think we would have a different opinion on that black people victims of white supremacy if we knew what white people were talking about when we are not present uh, i think we would probably stop saying that white people don't have to think about racism or they don't talk about it or they're not aware i suspect we would probably have a, a whole different assessment of that i'm even reminded uh the wall street journal they had a post today about how the supreme court they're looking at a case attorneys in georgia they had their own little code worked out about how they deliberately would keep black people off juries uh, we talked about that extensively and how that is done in a myriad of ways in keeping black people so they can't sit on those trials when it's time to indict somebody, time to go after these uh, race soldiers who d Daniel Holtzclaw or whomever it may be, Darren Wilson, pick your offender, uh, that black people are not on those juries or when it's a black person as the defendant. You know, get a sympathetic black person there who might say, hey, I'm I'm going to really look at this evidence and make sure this person did something. And this is not just a, hey, we got a nigger and we're going to put him in jail. Oh, no, we don't want any black people here. Make sure we do everything we can to exclude them. I think they're just there are plethora. Uh, there's a plethora of evidence, uh, in my view, that documents that white people are thinking about this a lot. White supremacy, racism. But again, I could be in error. Uh, finally, I. I laughed to myself. I was glad I was muted uh, with all the, the discussion that came up at the end around feminism. Uh, NPR did like a half hour interview with Gloria Steinman uh, today on NPR. I didn't get a I didn't get a chance to listen to it before we went on, but I, I saw it. And then with the conversation, I thought, oh, wow, that is super relevant. Uh, you can check it out. I'll post it on Facebook so you all can uh, listen if you are so interested. But it was one of their uh, top stories. It was uh, at 81 feminist Gloria Steinman finds herself free of the demands of gender. Uh, it's about 30 minutes. I'll post it if you are interested. Uh, with that, uh, we will catch folks tomorrow. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism, 
racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener supported counter racist radio uh, PayPal button top right corner uh, if you're not into PayPal uh, just drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address uh, the email address until justice at gmail.com uh, again until justice at gmail.com uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested down through the years and kept us on the air I hope we have given out some constructive information to help folks get a bit more clarity about what racism white supremacy is and how it works uh, if you have confusion gripes complaints uh, suggestions uh, or just whatever you would like to share uh, feel free to drop a line we're on twitter as well at until justice at until justice uh, with that uh, we will catch folks uh, in 24 hours uh, once again oh we have <laughs> we heard uh, the two words that I said I, I cringe every time I hear them together white friends we had that on the program again at any rate uh, remain codified if you're behind the wheel buckle up every time I've said that we really should try to do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers that's an easy one and I know too many non-white people who are lax about that and then they gripe about being stopped and getting tickets and all that other stuff uh, just do everything we can to minimize having those incidents where they have to stop us and it can I think we all should know it can spiral way out of control in the blink of an eye buckle up and in the same vein no alcohol sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism if you uh, are going to be behind the wheel even if you're going to be a passenger or a pedestrian i would go the sober route uh race soldiers they are constantly on the lookout to make problems for black people you want to be lucid clear thinking so that you can make the best possible decisions to protect yourself or your family if you have other people that you're responsible for really want to make sure that you are clear thinking under the system of white terrorism uh, and I always always emphasize you do not want to be around intoxicated white people uh, that is a super dangerous environment holiday season is coming up you're about to have a good three months of just all kinds of random excuses gotta have a party for Halloween gotta have a get together for Thanksgiving all this other stuff man that is not a safe environment under the system of white supremacy even non-white people that are intoxicated is too many examples of unnecessary and easily avoidable problems that happen with those intoxicants alcohol we already have enough problems on our plate as a result of racist man, racist woman, racist child. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. You're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>